Welcome to episode two of Chin Music, a podcast presented by Fangrass. I'm your host, Kevin Goldstein. You just heard our new theme music uh, put together by Steve Albini, believe it or not, of all people. Um, we'll have Steve on the show in a couple episodes talking about how the pandemic's affected the music industry. But, uh, you know, as we talked about in the first episode, going to be revolving the co-host. I couldn't be happier to introduce this guy to you. He is... Uh, an 11-year professional baseball player. He was a 22nd round pick in the 2009 draft and one of only two 654th overall picks to reach the big leagues. And joining us from his luxurious accommodations in El Paso, Texas, it's Cody Decker. Cody, how are you, man? Oh, you know, you know, Kevin, I'm living the dream, baby. I'm just sitting here. I'm <laughs> doing a podcast with you, man. I'm, I'm fired up. I'm fired up. I can talk about baseball all day and I'm fired up to do it with you. I wish we had more fun stuff to talk about. Like the, the the most of the baseball news in the last week was kind of dark with the Mariner stuff and some of the Yankees stuff. But nonetheless, I, you know, both of our Twitter feeds are, you know, filled with uh, you know, really far distance away video of people doing things like PFPs and live BPs. Um, spring training is no nothing you're far into. I just want to is spring training too long? Is it just like is it just it feels like in the first week, players just kind of want to show up, get their BPN, and get the hell out of there before lunch. And then by the end, people just want the season to start. Uh, like, how did you deal with, with kind of just the Groundhog Day grind of it all? Spring training is something that you were so excited to get to. And then three days in, you're dying for it to end. It is... Is it too long? The short answer is yes. It's absolutely too too long, but it makes too much money for too many cities in in, in both Florida and Arizona. So yeah. if anything, they're only going to expand it. There's no way they're ever going to cut it shorter, no matter what the players want. Um, yeah, it's way too long. It's three weeks too long. Um, players are babied early on. I mean, it's good to get young guys a couple of looks, but the looks are all, you know, there's a phrase that's used in baseball a lot, eyewash. Spring training is so filled with so much eyewash, which, by the way, in case you don't know what eyewash is, it's just a very polite term of saying bullshit. Fake it's hustle, just baby. eyewash is all over spring training. For instance, I was not a pro, I, I wasn't predominantly a catcher. I was a, I was a position player who mostly played the infield, played a lot of outfield, caught occasionally. I had to be at spring training every day on the field at 6 a.m. to do blocking drills for a position that I knew I wasn't even going to play. <laughs> But I'm there doing catch blocking drills, and then after I'm done with that, then I can go get breakfast, and then i got to go meet up with the catchers again. Again, a position that I'm not going to play this season. Then after I was done with the catchers, I had to go to the infielders. Then I had to go to the outfielders, and then by the end of every day, I couldn't lift my right arm, and I would always go into spring training, uh, going into season with just my arm torn to shreds. I couldn't throw. I could. It just wouldn't be nearly as good as it was, say, a month earlier. 
Uh, spring training's a grind. You know, you get there early, you leave late. And if you're in Florida, it's even worse because you got those long travels. At least in Phoenix spring training, everything is all in Phoenix. Your longest drive is Goodyear to Mesa, where Florida, you know, you got Tampa to Clearwater to, right. to you know, and they're mitigating that this year just more because of the pandemic. They're kind of building these pods. So, you know, there's the there's the Tampa pod and the Palm Beach pod. And, you know, you're only playing your local teams this year. There's no there's no big travel days this year, finally. Oh, well, it's, a, it's a step in the right direction, but it's just going to go right back to normal next year to being the same old grind. And you know who I really this, – this is nitpicking, obviously, because I, it sounds like I'm complaining about spring training. I'm not. I love spring training. It's just too long, and it's tedious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, I do feel a little bad and I normally wouldn't feel bad for young prospects who got their first chance to go to big league camp this year. Um, cause it's awesome. You go to your first big league camp, you get that first taste and exposure to a, a moderate big league lifestyle, especially if you've been stuck in the minor leagues, you know, it's, it's a drastic change. That being said, the minor leaguers that have no chance of making the team, especially guys that are on the 40 man who have to go down on the second cut day because of, you know, a lot of rules involved. Uh, they have to be at spring training for three months this year because the minor league spring training doesn't even start until after the big leaguers leave this year. Right, and it's further proof that spring training is too long. Just I'm sure you, there were years where you just did minor league camp, and you know, your minor league camp starts you know, somewhere between the 10th and 15th of March. Yeah, you know, it's, you show it's up tough. You get three weeks and go. You know, yeah. it's really all you need. Um, yeah, I, mean, I also feel sorry for, and this is all pandemic related. Like obviously, you know, teams are are, are running in there. Um, with a max of 75 players. Um, not everyone's ready. I think this weekend when games start, I've already talked to some teams about what they're doing, and um, games are going to be short. They're going to be five, six, seven innings because um, they can do that this year. They don't have enough players. And just like so often that first week of spring training, for me as a prospect guy, like those are super fun. After the seventh, when all of a sudden, you know, the dude wearing 97 comes in, you're like, I, that's their first, that's their third round pick from last year. He's 19 years old. I want to see this guy. He's not there. You know, and, and he's not going to get in. And I remember, you know, spring training, sitting, you know, with A.J. Hinch after a game. He's going, I need a second baseman tomorrow. And, we, you know, and then we'd talk about names and bring in the, the Miley people. And some kid would get to be with the big league team for a day. And, and obviously that's a thrill on its on its surface. But they also get like the, there's they also get an envelope filled of money, big league per diem for the day. And um, that's just dead this year. And I just think it's going to make those first week of spring training games way less interesting. Far less interesting, but I'm not going to complain about more baseball. I'm just, I'm just glad baseball's <laughs> back. That's all I really, truly care about. There's something about hearing the phrase "full squads at camp" that just makes me so excited. I'm, I'm, I'm. At the end of the day, I'm still one of the biggest baseball fans you could ever meet. I think there's a lot of darkness in the business of baseball. I think the business of baseball is some of the ugliest things you could ever look at, if, especially if you peel back the curtain a little bit. But the game itself, the players, what the product on the field is is never not enthralling to me. It just is of the best game in the world to me. So I'm just thrilled that we're getting baseball. Did you ever spring in Florida? With the Mets, right? No, I missed them. I was actually with the Brewers during that spring training, and then they oh, released me. And it was my own fault. They should have released me. I just didn't get out for three <laughs> weeks. So why why keep me? So you never you never spring in Florida. You got to do Arizona every year. So lucky, so lucky. I've so only played. For, I only played for two organizations that didn't have Florida spring training. Uh, that was the Red Sox, who I signed with midseason, and then uh, the Mets, who I signed with the first week of the season. So I've been very, very lucky that I had uh, seven seasons over in Peoria, one in Surprise, uh, two in Scottsdale, and one in. Uh, 
uh, Maryville, which was not my favorite, obviously, because Maryville is in the middle of nowhere. But uh, yeah, I mean, I got the seven years over in Peoria with the Padres and then two with the Diamondbacks. I mean, those are two of the best complexes, I think, in all of baseball. It's funny. Like, I remember when and this was like this is way before you is what you were, I guess, still in high school, even like when they opened that Peoria spot, which was the the. Um, you know the Padres place with the Mariners like that was stated there at the time and we've reached the point where it, it almost seems kind of aged compared to like you said what Arizona's rolling out at this point mm-hmm. it um, is but they did they did make some great upgrades yeah it's way better uh, than it was it, it really it, is something else and, it, and also when they first opened that place I would go play tournaments there like on weekends so I I yeah. got to play on that field that that complex so many times before the Padres ever drafted me so it honestly my first spring training I legitimately felt like home I played you knew roughly field. 70 baseball games on these fields. Wow. And that's another thing about Arizona. It's a much, it's a big advantage for the industry really. It's just once things start, um, you know, and, and, you know, Eric, the other prospect guy, Fangraphs and I watched a video on Twitch yesterday. Like there's all sorts of amateur events in Arizona while spring training is going on, all sorts of college tournaments and things like that. And you're, you're a little more freelance when you're in Florida. Like, you know, you're, you're finishing up the day and then you're driving to some high school, usually in, in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area to go see a kid. But they have like these big tournaments in Arizona. You're seeing, you know, really top college players all the time. It's really easy to fill your day up with, with baseball if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to talk about, you and I had a, like a brief Twitter exchange about this, and, and this is the time of the year when this happens a lot. And, and you know, the second you can put players on the 60-day disabled list, it opens up roster spots for you, and that the whole roster, manipulation is a bad word, but the whole kind of roster shuffling starts happening the second we can do that, and it turns into the, the DFA dance. Um, and, you know, Players get DFA'd all spring long, and, and some get through, some get claimed. You know, we've seen you know Fowler get claimed recently, and you know Heredia got claimed. Um, you know, Jack Mayfield got traded from the Braves to the Angels because he was going to get DFA'd, and I'm sure they sent an email out and said, "If anyone wants him, let me know." And the Angels said, "We want him," and they got him for cash, and that usually works out to be you know a dollar more than the claim price, so you can make sure you get him. But you talked about how you know, these guys get DFA'd, and people go, oh, "This guy got DFA'd, he stinks," and like. These guys don't stink at all. These guys are one of the 40 best players on the team. Or, or, you know, when they get DFA, they're probably the 41st best player on the team. That's still a hell of a talent. And and it's it's an ugly time for these players. Did you ever get DFA'd? Yes, I got DFA'd in 2015, right after the season. My, my only stint in the major leagues. I was DFA'd by the Padres. I cleared waivers, which meant I was going to become a free agent in a couple of days. And, and then I signed with the Royals very quickly after that. And I, I loved my time with the Padres. I, I was really appreciative. They gave me a shot at the big leagues. But there is nothing fun about being DFA'd. And for me personally, my, my experience about being DFA'd, uh, you know, the, you know, I get the phone call, hey, we, we DFA'd you and you cleared waivers. I'm just sitting there going, this sucks because I was in the big leagues and you didn't play me. I didn't do anything. <laughs> so no one, no one's going to claim me because they don't know whether or not I can play in the big leagues because I got one start and I was pulled in the fifth. So I'm just. Did they I, call you beforehand? Was there any sort of heads up or just. No, hey, just no, DFA'd. it was, they, it they was already you, done. You just, we just DFA'd you. And they called me to let me know it already happened. We DFA'd you and you cleared waivers. Thank you. So you're a free agent in three days. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciated the last seven years. I'm glad this conversation is, means absolutely zero to you. Who called you? Can I ask? Uh, it was uh, Fred Ullman. Fred okay, Ullman, yeah. Who I like funny. a lot. I like Fred yeah, Ullman quite a bit. But he was it the was fun just, director at the time. 
Yeah, but I got to understand, you, you know, I, I can understand anybody, even though I had a relationship, I wouldn't say I had a close relationship with Fred, but we knew each other. And, uh, you know, I, I can understand anybody in that situation that has to make that call. They have to detach themselves at least a little. You're giving sure. someone the possibly the worst news in the world. Randy Smith was our head of player development. And I remember uh, I had so much respect for Randy Smith because at the end of spring training, Randy, he absolutely dreaded the final cut day. Because he's calling guys in and telling them that their their journey's over. And some of them will get picked up again, but majority of them, this was the end of the You're line. You're talking about minor league cut day. Minor league cut day. Yeah. This is minor league cut that. day. And I'll never forget, uh, there was one day he cut uh, the second rounder that I was uh, drafted with. And I remember him coming out to the group, and he was in tears. He was in legitimate tears. Yes. Just saying, listen, guys, I know how bad this day is for a lot of you. I, I can't stress enough. I take no pleasure in this. This is a horrible day for me as well. I know that doesn't make anybody feel better. And it's not Williams? an excuse. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I just remember seeing how much it affected him made me just love Randy Smith that much more because it was the first time I saw a front office guy care about the players that were on the field. At that point, I really didn't get that much... It was always the us and them, you know, front office doesn't communicate with players and vice versa. It's just like a different, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. different dynamic. And to see how much this affected Randy made me go like, you know what? There are humans in there, just like we're humans out here. You know, this this really does affect us. And that that really that meant a lot to me to see that it affected him as well. Um, and I and I wish more people in baseball were like that. And I really wish fans were more fans were like that because they, you know, they see what's in front of them. But what's put in front of them, not what's actually in front of them. Yeah, I just I, like you have no idea how good this dude is. This guy, you know, this guy who's got DFA'd is an incredible baseball player. Mm -hmm. uh, it just kind of speaks to how hard Major League Baseball is. I tell um, people all the time that I, I feel like there are all stars, potential MVPs, potential Hall of Famers that we never got to hear about or see because they never got the opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, if someone you can be to, someone come to mind for you. Uh, oh yeah, I got a guy immediately that comes to mind, but it wasn't because he got released. He uh, developed vertigo. There was a player in the Padre organization I played with named Drew Cumberland. This mm. guy was special. He could hit. He could hit. He could field. He could run. There wasn't anything he couldn't do at an elite level. He started second base in the 2010 Futures game. Yep. And the next season, he developed a severe case of vertigo and could never play again. Mm. This guy was going to be a star. A star. And just couldn't do it because his, 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 he had too many concussions and it just he couldn't get back on the field without having right. a massive spell of vertigo. And that's a guy that I feel like we've all been deprived of. Other guys that come to mind that I really think could have been, uh, he was already in the major leagues. He, he also an injury uh, guy. Will Middlebrooks is a guy that comes to mind to me immediately mm. of a guy that could have been Talent-wise, might have been one of the most talented guys I've ever shared a field with. I couldn't believe what he could do. Yeah, and we never got to power. see it. Uh, because of that injury. Um, let's talk about minor league cut day just because, I mean, you, we've seen it from different angles, but we've seen it both up close. Um, these emails have already started, and it's just kind of dribs and drabs with one or two players. But, you know, somewhere around middle of March, they start really rolling out when the cut days show up. And, and what happens is an email goes out to all 30 teams. Um, you know, just like everyone here has email groups. There are email groups in baseball. There's, there's a general manager's email group, and you can send an email. It goes to every general manager. Um, there's an AGM one and there's also like scouting directors. And that's the one I was on. Um, and the scouting directors get all these emails and it just says in the case, it just says, you know, the, whatever name a team, the San Diego Padres have released the following players 
They all have say exactly the same thing. San Diego Padres have released the following players. They would like to continue their careers in baseball and could be reached as below. And it's just a list of players. It's like 15, 20 dudes and name, phone number, email address, sometimes uh, a representative contact if they have an agent and they know who it is. Uh, and that's it. And you get 50 of these during spring training. You know, sometimes the team just releases two guys and four days later they'll release, they'll, they'll cut 14 and you get these and, and, you look at every one of them, and, and like you said, it's a mix of guys. You're like, I don't know who that is. Uh, that's just some dude down at their complex, the Dominican, who, who's not going to get off the island. And then you run into the guy, like, oh, God, I remember that dude. He was a first-round pick. And it's a, it's a real mix of, of, of players. And, and like you said, this is not – like those DFA guys on a big league 40-man roster, they might not get picked up, but chances are they're going to still play professional baseball. For you know, 80%, 90% of these guys, this is it. That's mm-hmm. it. They're done. Like they didn't get – they're 24. They, they couldn't solve high A. Um, team just drafted 30, 40 guys, and, and it's it's over. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, going, seeing, you know, the 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 backfield side of, of our complex and that locker room on on that day, um, I've cried seeing those kids as they pack their stuff up because they they know this is it. This is I'm I'm done. It, it it's it's not going to happen. The only time I, I was pretty upset when the Rockies released me because I thought it was a on quite frankly, I thought it was a, the shadiest release I've ever been a part of. But the Brewers one didn't make me upset. It infuriated me because if you if I told you how this all shook down, it was insane. I'll, I'll never forget. <laughs> it. I get back to my locker room after I get called in the office. I already I already got my apartment in uh, Colorado Springs. I was told I was playing. I was going to be the starting third baseman, and I was going to catch quite a bit. But then I realized I hadn't been catching in spring training lately. And my oh. managers, my managers, was like, "Hey, don't worry about it. You're playing third base, anyways. Don't don't worry about it." And then I remember they get called in the office, and but I kept asking, like, "Hey, when am I going to do some catching work?" I've been asking the catching coordinator, like, no, like he won't return my calls. Like, what's going on? I get called in the office, and I think it's to tell me, "Hey, we're just going to keep you in the infield this season. That's why you haven't been catching." They said, "Hey, we're going to let you go." I'm like, "What? What do you mean you're going to let me go?" He's like, yeah, we don't think your catching's coming along. And I just stared at him like, I haven't caught in three weeks. I haven't done a catching drill, and your catching coordinator won't return my calls. What are you talking about? And he's like, well, you know, he didn't think you, he didn't think your catching came along. I'm like, I haven't caught in front of him ever. He's never seen me catch. Right. He's not wrong. Uh, like, I'm just like, what the hell is going on? And then I remember I go back to my locker, and my all my bags were emptied. Wow. The ba- they took the bags back. And just dumped my gear in the locker, and I was my—I almost went to the clubby and and beat the hell out of them. I was that angry. And then immediately, but the best part was, you know, um, uh, Brett Phillips, who was a high, you know, a prospect at the time for the Brewers. Yeah, of course. He was my locker mate, and we were getting along great. He's just a great kid. And, yeah. And he he was you know he was treating me like a veteran ball player because I'd been around at this point for a decade, and he just. He knows me, and he, he just sits there, and he he sees that my lot my gear is there. He goes and screams at the like this is a kid who has has never been in the big leagues at the time. He's just a high prospect. He goes over and screams at the uh, clubby on my behalf, like how dare you do this? This guy, we're all us young guys are sitting here learning from him, and you you do him like that in front of everybody is bullshit. Just going off. The clubby comes back and repacks all my bags and carries nice. them to my, carried them to my car for me. Nice. I'm like, and he's like, you can keep the bags. And I'm like, no, no, no. Why don't you go ahead and dump all my all my shit out? Just I don't want your bags. <laughs> I want nothing to do with your horrible organization. <laughs> um, let's talk about the first release. Like you, you, you got DFA'd in November. Um, 
They didn't call you until you passed through waivers? Yeah, they told me after the fact. They just told you, hey, you're a free agent now. Thanks Pretty much. Everything. They told me you're a free agent in three days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was okay. like, oh, okay. So uh, like, it, I was just signed, disappointed. Uh, that's were, all. You were like an early sign. You signed like a month later with the Royals. Yes, um, yeah. Did you have a, you, I assume you had an agent. I did. I did have an agent. And So, uh, what, like, so talk about, because I, I wrote a thing about how minor league contracts are put together and talked about how, because I used to, I used to kind of run our minor league process and, and did our, our minor league contract negotiations and, you know, quickly learned um, just through doing it that, that players, like the money was like the last thing we'd ever talk about, right? It was always about opportunity. It was always about like, A, I need an NRI. B, tell me what your situation is, the position I play is. And I, I need to figure out how, you know, if you have a good path to the big leagues for me. Um, you, you signed with the Royals, but like, what was your process like? Like how many teams came a calling on you and, and what went into your decision to sign with Kansas City? I really wanted to sign early. Um, I don't whether, whether that was a good idea or not, or a bad idea. That's really up to whatever the situation is. I decided on Kansas City. I had five teams that were talking to me quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the conversations with the Padres were very, very small. They said, hey, we'd like to ask you back, but uh, let, let us know if what other sign offers come in. We'll see what we can do. Uh, and they just, I think they just wanted to move on from me. I feel yeah. like that there was nothing more for me over there. And I understood that. And they were going in a very different direction. It was AJ. My last year there was AJ Preller's first year. And mm-hmm. I clearly am not AJ Preller's type of ball player. And that's perfectly fine. Um, I, I was, I really liked AJ Preller. I liked that whole regime. I liked the Padres. I was sad. I was sad to go. Uh, but the teams I was between, um, the teams I was talking to mostly were these three teams. I was talking with the the Dodgers the Royals and the Cubs mostly. I was talking about four other teams, but we were talking money with these three. Like this, we were we were deep into it. Right. Um, I my whole life grew up a Dodger fan, but they were not. It, there was nothing about that going like, oh god, I want to play for the Dodgers. Right. No so even even though you're in El Paso, people should know. Like you went to UCLA. You're from SoCal. Yeah, I'm from Southern California. I'm from Santa Monica. I grew up a diehard Dodger fan. I played at UCLA. Uh, you know, I ha- I still live in Los Angeles. I live in both Los Angeles and El Paso. I go back and forth. Um, and I, I just, there wasn't anything about that allure. At that point, I'd been playing for seven years, and that whole uh, mystique of baseball has long been dead in me at that point. So there was nothing about the Dodgers that made me go, like, i got to be a Dodger. In fact, right. my entire life, believe it or not, I wanted to be a Cub. I always thought... The Cubs were cool. I grew up in Southern California, and the only three teams I would get every single night were Dodger games, Cub games, Braves. Red Sox games, and Braves games. Yeah. And I always found myself watching WGN in the afternoon to watch Cubs games. And there was just something about the Cubs that I just thought was so cool. I loved their jerseys, loved their logo. Every time I looked at Wrigley, it was just there's something about it that's cool. I don't care if they've never had won a World Series since 1908. I talked to their front office, and like you said, you said you talked to minor leaguers, and they're talking about how want the opportunity, want this. The Cubs offered me the most money by far, mm-hmm. and then the Dodgers said, "Was this, was this like a like a, like a triple A rate, like a monthly rate?" The, yeah, they're like, "We'll we'll, we'll give okay. you a split contract. You know, if you're in the big leagues, you'll make this much." Like I think it was like if you make the big leagues, you'll make a million. Which, by the way, it was a ridiculous number for That's someone a like good me. Split contract for it was someone a ridiculous. With, with a it was like it was, big it, was a tr- yeah. it was a truly ridiculous That's number to the amazing. point where I I looked at it like there's no way they're putting me in the big leagues. 
That was my concern. That's and that's that's something I always wonder. Like I, I do wonder, like if you offer them this big money and like you realize that you're that that can be seen as a disincentive to call you up. It wasn't quite a million, but it was up there. It was a split contract that yeah. was significantly higher than the other split contracts I was being offered, and their monthly rate for uh, AAA was significantly higher than everybody else. Except the Dodgers said, "Whatever anyone offers you, will match it." Okay. Uh, but then I also know that if you're getting a lot of money in AAA and you're not playing well, that's the first contract they look to unload. Yep. So I was also a little hesitant about that. I'm like, yeah, it looks good on paper, but I have a bad two weeks. You know, they're gonna. That's a lot of money they're spending on me in AAA. And but the ending decision was when I was talking to the Royals, they gave me down to the detail of what my role was, what they saw for me. This is what you're gonna do, and it was. When I say the AAA contract was $10,000 less than, than what the Mets, what the Cubs were offering me, it was $10,000 less a month. Yeah, and, and this, you see this all the time. Players don't sign for the money. Don't sign AAA contracts for the money. They yeah. just don't. So I signed what, and I kept going to the Cubs. I'm like, hey, just tell me what you think my role is going to be. He's like, oh, you'll get here and we'll take a look. And I'm like, listen, I already played behind Anthony Rizzo once. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I'm going to be stuck in Iowa forever. Where... The Royals said, we see you as a bat off the bench in the big leagues right out the gate, and we see you as our new Johnny Gomes. I said, perfect. Done. You, have, you know exactly what to do with me. Let's go. And it sadly didn't work out. I was the last guy sent down uh, in camp. I was number 26. A little heartbreaking. Uh, I was I was kind of told that wasn't kind of told I was told I made the team then they changed their mind. <laughs> mm. uh, it wasn't a bit it, it wasn't a big deal. I understand it's a business it happens but you know I get a, I get called in the office after our last game in uh, was the, was Arizona. That, was that a, was that a, a message delivered by the manager? Yeah, I got called okay. in the I got called in the office after our game at uh, at Chase Stadium against the Diamondbacks. Uh, I flew with the team to uh, Kansas City and had to get in my car and drive to Omaha. It was a bit a bit tragic, but you know it was. I really loved the Royals. I thought they were the nicest people, and mm-hmm. I just so appreciated that. Dayton Moore was wonderful. Dayton Moore uh, was absolutely uh, Gene Watson. Human delivery. Gino's great. Yeah. Gene Watson might be my favorite person in all of baseball, and the He's Angels great. are so lucky to have him now. Yeah. Um, so it was just uh, it didn't work out, and they ended up trading me over to Colorado, and um, because the role just wasn't there for me that they promised, unfortunately, and that happens and they tried to do their best to do right by me. Unfortunately, they sent me to Colorado and Colorado had no reason to have me. They, uh, they just, they rented me cause Daniel Descalso had a broken hand. Right. And once Daniel Descalso's hand was no longer broken, I was no longer employed. <laughs> Life in AAA. It's a good time, isn't it? Yes, it is. So I ended up, uh, I ended up uh, thinking, well, it doesn't matter. I only had I, at the time, I only had sixty-five at bats, seventy at bats on the season. Right. I was only, I was hitting bat. I wasn't hitting very well, but it was because I w- had like a bad stretch of like an zero for fifteen. So I was hitting like two thirty, but I had five homers and I was doing fine. I was one good game away from being back to two seventy. And I remember going home, being driving home, like that's ridiculous. I can't believe they just released me. It's all right. I'll get picked up in no time. A month and a half goes by, no jobs are available because it's May. There are no jobs available in Rosters May. Rosters are full. So comes around June, I get a phone call from the Red Sox, and they just said, would you be willing to go to AA? And I just said, yes, I'll go anywhere. I'll go, I'll go anywhere. What uh, did you do for that month? Like, what did you do? Like, you know, so you got, you get, you get the, 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 the Rockies release you in the middle of May. Mm-hmm. You signed with the Red Sox middle of June. For that month, um, 
what, like literally are you i assume you're at home are you working out every day like how are you, are you, are you just you went back over playing, to ucla xbox what are you doing no i was just saying i went to ucla every morning i hit for an hour i'd work out for another hour and a half i'd work on my take ground balls i'd catch bullpens and i remember specifically casey jansen was yeah. not signed either so casey would come up and throw bullpens and i'd catch him and then we eventually just started working together to get scouts out to come look at us. And then a scout for the Red Sox came out to look at him. And I'm like, oh, great. I'm actually already talking to the Red Sox. I'll let them know that I'm catching you. So we did that. I took BP and I just, I just asked the scout, where do you want me to hit the ball? Just, just tell me what you want me to do. He's like, <laughs> give me your normal BP. I'm like, okay, my normal BP is I hit line drives to right. That's all I do. He's like, so I'll hit, I'll just do that. So I just did my normal routine. He's like, hey, can you let a couple of go? Maybe. Yeah, I was gonna say you don't have, you don't do a let it fly around at the end. No, no, I never do, never wow. do, never. The only time I let it fly is only to right field. I never hit the ball to the left side of second base. It just helped me yeah. stay online during the game. That's it's, mm-hmm, it. Was mm-hmm. what was best for me. So I just let a couple fly. I hit a couple over the batter's eye center, hit a few into the trees, and he's just like, okay, we're going to sign you tomorrow. Are you willing to go to double-A? And I said, I can't get back to the big leagues from my couch, man. I'll go anywhere you say. I just need, I just want to be back on the field. So I went to double-A in Portland, and I finished out the year, but I, what I didn't realize was how much getting released that season and how much that, that three months really messed with me mentally. Like, mm-hmm. it really, really did. So when I got to Portland, you know, they told me it's the at the time they had 20 wins. It was June, It was the end of June. They had 20 wins, but they had prospects. So we have this guy named Yoan Moncada that's, gonna, that's there now. Mm-hmm. We need to get him going. We got this guy, Ben Attendee, who's hitting 100. We need you to go over there and kind of take over the clubhouse. So I went mm-hmm. there, and I just played Crash Davis to everybody. And as I was helping everybody else, my mental health was going just downhill. I, I was... I would get in the batter's box and my hands would start to shake. Like I was so scared of not getting hitting hitting getting a hit or getting on base. I was so scared of getting released again. I was so scared that right. hey, this is my last shot. If I don't succeed here, my my career's over and this is all I've known my entire life. And I have no money. I have no nest egg or anything like that to fall back on. What am I going to do? Come on, you got that big 22nd round bonus as a senior sign. $638.43 <laughs> after taxes. You got a grand? I got uh, $1,000, uh-huh. but after taxes, $638.43. I remember my first big league camp. Bud Black mentioned that the guy, uh, my locker mate next to me was, uh, give me a second, infielder. Uh, I think he's with the Brewers, right? Spangenberg. Yeah, Corey Spangenberg, yeah. Uh, Corey Spangenberg was the locker mate next to me, and I remember they asked him how much he got a signing bonus, and it was like something like $2 million, and I mm-hmm. just immediately, I had a cup of coffee, and I d- did a legitimate spit take. This is in front of the entire big league team and everything. <laughs> And he just said, Buddy's like, Jesus, Deck, you okay? And I'm like, Yeah, no, I just, I just heard two million dollars, yeah. and um, and I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose my mind. And he just I, laughed. He yeah. laughed. He's like, Well, Deck, how much you get? Six hundred thirty-eight dollars forty-three cents after taxes. You see these bats that are above my locker, buddy? He said, Yeah. Those bats you guys got me. He's like, Yeah. Those bats you bought me for this spring training cost four of me. Bonus. Yeah. I had a friend who played uh, a while, never got to the big leagues, maxed out at AAA, and he always told me a story uh, about, uh, won't name names, but he had a, you know, he was in AAA and had a rehabbing big leaguer next to him, right? And um, the rehabbing, and it was payday. Payday came, and, you know, checks go around, right? And um, this guy opened his check, and my friend is, you know, he couldn't help it. He just kind of leaned and peaked, peaked the check, and it was, you know, for two weeks' pay, and it was uh, like $712,000. 
And, <gasps> and um, he said, it's always stuck with me. Said, what got to him wasn't the fact that he had a check for $712,000. What got to him was that in two weeks he gets another one. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, in two weeks and, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, I um, remember, yeah. I remember uh, when I got my signing bonus check. Was I was in spring training on the training table, not spring training. I was in uh, on the training table in Arizona for the AZL rookie yeah. rookie level, and my club he comes up to me and hands me a check. He's like, "Hey, Zach, signing bonus. Yeah, don't spend it all in one place." <laughs> and he walks out the room, and I open up the check, and the trainer sees me looking at my check, and he looks at the number, and he goes like, "Oh, that's gonna be pretty hard for you, though, huh?" <laughs> I'm like, "Yes, yes, it is. Thank you." What was that? That's what was that like? Because I see, I always wondered this. Because I'm glad you brought up. The AZL. So you get you get drafted again, twenty two year old senior sign UCLA, and you go to rookie league and you go to the complex league in Arizona, and you crush it. Right? I mean, it's it's break I, every record they got. They had some right, scrub. Yeah. They had so, some scrub named Mike Trout in the league that couldn't win the MVP that year. Yeah, sorry, you, Mike. You destroyed it. So I, I just looked it up. So you you hit uh, three thirty three four thirteen six seventy one, but. At the same time, you know, I, I know you won't take this up. Like, you're 22 years old playing against children. Um, Believe it or not, my team was filled with senior signs. It was me, how did, but how did Juan you, de Olabisi, uh, Dylan Tonneson. We were we were all Pac-10 guys. How did you, uh, did you, were you sitting there going, man, I got this? No, I was sitting there this going like, easy. How, I was just sitting there going like, how long are you guys going to keep me here? Like, what are we doing? Like, put me anywhere and I'll hit you 30. Just let me play. And I remember they moved me up the low A uh, right before playoffs, and they told me, hey, you're not going to play. We're just going to let the team keep playing, but they're going to win the championship. So we're just you're kind of just getting rewarded with a ring for the year you just had. I said, okay, mm. that's fine. You know, you, you, we could win by more if you play me too. <laughs> and he's just like, yeah, we, we got this guy who's just been DHing all year. We're just going to let him finish it up. I'm like, all right, you do you, man. I don't care. Um, and then the next year I started in high A, had a good year. Yeah, it was it was an interesting time in the AZL. I, I actually had a great time because I had a great group of guys with me. Uh, on my team, I had a guy named... Uh, we, we were, it was honestly probably the only AZL team ever that was filled with senior signs. It was me, Cameron Monger, who was our leadoff man. He was out of uh, UNM. We had a senior catcher uh, out of Cal named Dylan Tonneson. We had a senior outfielder out of Stanford named Wande Olabisi. And we just all got very close and we just had as much fun as we possibly could. Um, but yeah, the AZL was definitely an interesting time, but I, it, I knew that, Hey, listen, I, I'm also aware that I'm facing a lot of 18, 19 year old Dominican kids. Who That's what I was You weren't sitting there going, man, this is, I'm, I'm on my way. I, I no, this. no. I'm like, I know I'm getting a lot of speed here. I just got to get on time for one Oh five. The only thing that sucked about it was everyone throws 95 to a hundred in that league. They have no clue where no, it's going. Exactly. Yeah. So I could just as easily get a pitch right down the middle as I can get three right at my head, which happened a lot. Yeah. Ugh. So, um, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're sitting around looking for a gig, like, I just feel like you're one of the few players who, you know, obviously you got a ton more chances. You were always a guy who could, you know, show up and hit some balls over the fence. Um, 2019, you're having a you're playing for Reno you're 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 not having a bad year by any stretch you're slucking over 500 and I, it just always strikes me because it's it's something you don't see a lot on uh, a transaction list it just says voluntarily retired and um and it was it was in July and and kind of like what 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 happened what went into that decision at what point did you say this is what I'm doing 
It it took a lot. Um, so I had been thinking about retiring at that point for two years. It just mm-hmm. seemed like no matter what I do, no matter how I play, um, you know, that year with the with the Red Sox, and I loved the Red Sox how they treated me, and 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 I, you know, even though I was stuck in Double A that for the last two months of the year, you know, there were so many positives I can take out of that. I, I remember at the end of the season. The last game of the season, I remember I finished the year, probably the total year hitting like 238 with 19 home runs, but I had about 306 at-bats. But I remember I after that last game, I sat in my locker and I just, I knew what a failure this year was. Yeah. Uh, and to me, like I've never, I, I've never looked at myself like you played terrible. That was awful and maybe that's it. Maybe that's, maybe, maybe you're done. But I remember I got called in the office by uh, assistant GM for the Red Sox uh, who was there and he called me in and hugged me and he just said I want I he's like I know what you were going through and I want you to thank you so much for what you did he's like you played way better than you think you did and you while you were here you led this organization in home runs and no one was even close I said well thank you for that but then I remember after the game I was really down on myself and uh, we had a young prospect who is now the second baseman for the Giants now Mauricio Dubon and he came over and hugged me and said I thank you I learned more from you than anybody else and I just said uh, that moment just changed my life hearing that hearing that said to me because I'm like I'm I'm there thinking I just failed horrifically I'll never I don't think I'm ever going to play again and that this kid who's a top prospect just came up to me and just told me what I meant to him and that rejuvenated me whole completely uh, I ended up um, next year with the Mets I had a very good year but I didn't play very much and I was all off the bench and you know mm-hmm. I ended up hitting 15 home runs hit like 245, but I was, you know, you try coming off the bench and doing, mm. doing that. And then my next year with the Diamondbacks, uh, when I signed with the Diamondbacks, I went to Reno and I started hot. I was leading the PCL, which is now no longer exists. Um, I was leading the PCL in home runs and RBIs, and I get a phone call thinking I'm getting called up to the big leagues, and then they called me to tell me they were calling somebody else up and they needed my roster spot. Uh, because they needed a shortstop at AAA, so I I had an injured ankle now, and <laughs> I re- I remember being told that I'm going on the Phantom. That I realized, wow, it, my career really is over. <laughs> I just, uh, <laughs> I'm, now the fa- I'm now the Phantom DL guy. I'm the Phantom DL guy. I'm leading the PCL in home runs in most offensive categories, but I'm the Phantom DL guy. Wow. Okay. I had a game three days earlier where I homered twice, and now I'm on the Phantom DL. Okay. I finished out the year, had a great year, all things considered. The fact that I only had like 150 at-bats. Um, but I then they called me and they said they wanted me back because how I affected the team and the clubhouse and how I was in the organization. And, and I signed back immediately and played that Crash Davis role on and off the Phantom. And I remember it was like my second time on the Phantom. And whenever I would play, I'd play great. But I remember I got back on the Phantom just saying, listen, I'm, I'm spinning my wheels. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is... It's fun to play, but everything else about this is not quite as fun. I love being in the clubhouse. And I had these opportunities in front of me uh, with Radio.com Sports and uh, to become an assistant um, associate executive director of a baseball and softball nonprofit. Um, so the the radio offer was just so very good, and I, I, I we, we determined what the show was going to be. The Diamondbacks allowed me to fly to Boston multiple times during, while I was on the Phantom to do test shows and and right. negotiate and uh they just asked me to keep it kind of quiet and i did and the offer was there and i i talked to my family my wife uh and it just came to the point where 
there was only a member, one member of the Diamondbacks front office who was begging me not to do it. And to which I just asked him, are you planning on calling me up? It's a yes or no question. And right. he just says, you're not in the plans. I'm like, I'm never going to be on the plans, man. <laughs> Dude, I haven't played in a month. And I'm, I'm second in the team and second in like in the organization and home runs. And I haven't played in a month. And he's just like, I know, I know. But you never know. I'm like, yeah, you do. Sometimes you, <laughs> right, know. you know. You know. You know. So I remember uh, he said, well, we are taking off the Phantom in a couple of days. Would you want to play? I said, absolutely, I want to play. I'll play a couple more games. Absolutely. Uh, I had a meeting with my manager in AAA, uh, 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 Kevin, uh, Chris Crone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful man. Um, we, I had a meeting with my team and explained to them the situation. They all hugged me and uh, – wished me well and then uh, I remember we go to my last game and my teammates knew it was my last game the announcer knew it was my last game and my family knew it was the last game no one else knew and uh it was uh the most magical night of my life it was the first time I played I think in like at that point four weeks and I remember I get in the batter's box and I caved my first three at bats and I'm like oh thank god this is it I can't do it. I hate this <laughs> My timing was so bad at the time because I'm like, I haven't seen a live arm in a month. Like, what do we, what, what am I doing? And then my finally, we get to the eighth inning. We're down by one. I got bases loaded in two outs, and I hit a line drive in the left field to tie the game. And I'm thinking, you know what? And then we take the lead. I'm like, you know what? It's a good way to go out. Got yeah. game, Line drive single, game tying. It's a good way to go out. I go to left field, and we get our, our closer gives up the lead, and I was so mad he gave up the lead. That I'm like, you know what? I'm three batters away. I'll just hit a walk off. And I wasn't even thinking about this as my last game anymore. I was just mad that we're losing. And I remember I get in the batter's box and their closer throwing. He throws 101. And I'm just sitting there just going, just like, just, just hit the fastball. Get on time for the fastball. If he throws me three bastard sliders, he deserves to get me out. I don't care. Just get on time for this fastball. First pitch fastball, fouled it back. I step out of the box and just scream at myself audibly. The catcher can hear me. I'm like, you idiot. Get on time for the fastball. What's wrong with you? Next pitch, another fastball, and I absolutely crushed it over the left center wall. And then it was just hugs and hugs and hugs out on the field. And it's like out of we, a movie. It was it was something special, man. And then I remember I went in the clubhouse. At uh, first, they wouldn't let me go in the clubhouse. Uh, I it still didn't even register that that was my last at bat until I took my batting gloves off and put in my helmet to put in my the the cubby hole. Yeah. And I just right when I put it in the rack, I went like, oh my god, this is the last time I'm ever doing this. That's it. And I looked to my right, and just standing there, almost too close to me, staring directly at my face, was uh, was Johnny Gomes, our outfield coordinator. And I just looked at him like, Johnny, I'm retiring, man. And he just goes, I know. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and then he just rips my bat out of my hands and runs into the clubhouse. I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'll see that later. <laughs> I try to leave to go in the clubhouse and all my team, I didn't even notice. I was just, the, the moment was so crazy that all my teammates were in the, in the dugout and they literally picked me up and threw me back out on the field for a curtain call with the fans and the fans were giving me, and it was like, there was like 8,000 people there and they were giving me a huge curtain call to the point where I was tearing up and the fans have no idea that I'm retiring. They don't know that this is my last, the last time right, they're ever right. going to see me. And I go in the clubhouse, and I remember before the game, one of my teammates bought me a one-gallon bottle of Don Julio and Yeho. And he's like, hey, this, this is the only thing you're going to sip for the next year, man. I'm It's my gift to you. Have a great retirement. I'm like, thanks, buddy. I remember coming after the game, going in the clubhouse. It's sitting there in the middle of the table. It's like, this ain't lasting a year, Dick. We're <laughs> drinking it now. Everybody just takes shots, and they started giving me speeches. And I just, I mean, it was, it was waterworks, man. Especially oh. when Travis Snyder 
uh, gave his speech to me. I, you know, because I played with Travis at he that point. with the Braves. Oh, good. Thank God. Yeah, I love He just got one. I love Travis Snyder. I mean, he uh, he he and I played together with the Royals and the Mets and the Diamondbacks. So the fact that you know he he lifted a drink for every with everybody and and gave a speech uh, to me and I I just started tearing up. I'm you know, I just said thank you, uh, guys. You're the best group of guys I've ever played with, and uh, I'm let's please have this shot before I start crying. <laughs> and so it was it was just great. It was hugs all around and. You know, I'm my my career had plenty of ups and downs, plenty um, dark times. You know, where I had to live in my car because I couldn't afford anything. Um, to moments like that, like or moments like when I got called up to the big leagues, uh, I was I thought my even then I thought my career was over. I was in the I was at baggage claim, picking up my bags, thinking my career was done, and I get a phone call saying, "Hey, we're going to need you to uh, go back to the front desk and uh, meet the team in Arizona. You're you're going to the big leagues." Mm. We just we just have a there's a four hour Cody Decker story time at some point. Oh man, I I, I got <laughs> I got stories, baby. I got stories for days. I'm trying to actually be quick about them. So we'll take a break on that one. On a positive note, we'll come back and and have a uh, you know probably a much darker conversation with Ryan Divish about the Mariner situation. So uh, stick around. Welcome back to episode two of Chin Music. That was the music of Gently Beyond. We'll talk about them in a bit. Our special guest is joining us from his luxurious accommodations in Arizona to talk about uh, the week's big news, kind of the, the, the dark story of the week involving the Seattle Mariners. He is the Seattle Mariners beat writer for the Seattle Times, and he is Ryan Divish. Ryan, how are you? Um, I'm, I'm surviving. That's for certain. Last Three or four days have been a little bit unusual, to say the least. <laughs> I, I can imagine, before I get into the story itself, and, and I, I think anyone listening knows what the story is with the Mariners, but you, know, you say you're surviving. When this kind of story breaks, you know, obviously, you know, your job, you are the Seattle Mariners beat writer. For the most part, you are covering the, the you know, America's pastime of baseball. When, when a story like this happens that falls kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of outside the lines... Do you get excited? Do you get annoyed? Do you get both? Does it is like, oh, crap, I got to deal with this now? Um, or is it, oh, this is a really big story. This is great. Like, how, how, what goes through your head when something like this happens? Uh, yeah, so that um, that was a little odd that day. Um, I guess I, I didn't know that, like, I'd be covering a guy self-immolating his career. Um, but 
it worked out that way. Um, really, so I like I that morning because we we weren't allowed on on the the Mariners practice fields for the first right. five days of spring training because I think MLB honestly thought that the the spring training was going to be delayed. So like there was this whole rush late to try and figure out how they're going to do everything, and they came out with this. Well, you guys can't go when there's pitchers and catchers and i'm thinking well yeah but there's actually less people when there's just pitchers and catchers and now you want us to go on full squad but anyway so yeah like that sunday we did a zoom call with scott service i was planning i think to write about tom murphy and his long walks in the woods without cell service and then um i was like well you know what i ate unhealthy i'll go to the gym for a little bit because the gyms are open you know you wear the mask or whatever so I go to the gym, I actually have a pretty decent workout, and I think I'm going to destroy my workout or destroy my workout or what was my workout by going to In-N-Out and having a three-by-three three burger and some animal fries. It's a perfectly fine choice. Yeah, and so I get there, and I, I got you know mouthful of burger, and I see I'm looking at my phone because that's what everybody does when they eat. They don't interact, and I was eating by myself anyway. So I'm, like, I'm looking at my phone, and, and I see this tweet from a guy that I get alerts from, and it's that it's the transcript of what Kevin Mather said or like notes of what Kevin Mather said and the link to the YouTube. So I'm trying to look at the notes, but like the, the screen grab that they did of the notes, it was small. And now that I'm in my mid forties, I need reading, need like uh, reading glasses a little bit, not very mm-hmm. much like 0.25, but like my eyes have just been beat up from screen time. So here I am in and out and I've got my arm extended out as far as I can get this damn freaking phone to try and see what these notes are. And then I got to put my other arm out and look, I'm, I'm five, eight and I got like, I'm built like a fire hydrant. So my arms aren't very long. And so everybody in this in and out in the outdoor part thinks here's this idiot with a mouthful of burger trying to take a selfie and like turning around. I know it's cause I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't see the damn screen. And so then I was like, this is terrible. So I remembered I had my head. So I got my headphones in my pocket. So I put my headphones on and, and I start listening to this YouTube while I'm eating. And I was like, you know, again, mouthful of burger. Like, what? This isn't good. Like I'm, I'm listening to it. I'm going, this, this doesn't sound good. Like when you have the words, Jared Kelnick and service time in the same sentence from a, a president of a team, nothing good is going to come from that. Unless you're saying we will not do anything, we won't consider it. So I'm like, oh, you know, so I, I hurry up, finish my food, um, which is never healthy to, to try and wolf down that much food that quickly. And I go back and I start texting my bosses like, hey, this is kind of big. And then, and, you know, and I sent it to Larry Stone, our longtime columnist. And then, um, and you know, I was listening. I was like the first time it was kind of like, ah. He said a few things. At least I can get a story out of it. And then I went back and listened a second time. I'm like, oh, man, this is not good. This is getting worse every time I listen to it. And that was also Larry Stone's reaction. The more he listened to it, the better, the worse it sound, sounded. And the tone of it all, like when I looked at the com- – when I finally was able to get my glasses and look at the comments or the kind of the, the bullet points, when I – it was it didn't seem bad. But then when you go and listen to his tone and the way he was talking about it – and the condescension at times and the elitism and then the derision at times towards players is like, I mean, this is, this is a guy like, you know, showing how the sausage is made and how these guys talk about players. And, and I'm thinking to myself too, is how in the hell did he not know they're recording this thing? And who in the hell is the breakfast Bellevue Rotary club, which is who he was talking to. So like all that stuff. So it was just from there, it was chaos. And then I, I, you know, I, I actually, um, knowing that the Mariners were probably calling the Bellevue Roadie Club to get that taken down ASAP, mm-hmm. 
I, I ran it through my iPad with a screen record to keep it. And then I also ran the audio through um, otter.ai. So we'd have the transcript and everything else. And, and um, yeah, and so it was just like from there, it was just like one big, you know, you're, you're cramming, you're trying to write, you're rewriting, you're adding stuff. We're waiting, you know, I'm texting with everybody from the Mariners about, hey, when, when are we going to get a statement from this guy? What are they going to do? And, you know, back and forth with them. And then I was just getting a barrage of texts from former Mariners employees, current Mariners employees, just going, what is this guy doing? I can't wait till he gets fired. It was kind of the, <laughs> that was kind of the, the overall theme. Like he is so disliked within that organization that most people were like, this is a comeuppance. He's getting what he deserves. And so for people who before a few days ago were not necessarily well versed in the world of, of Kevin Mather, he already was, you, you seem to indicate he was already not the most popular dude in the world. Yeah, he had, um, he had, I think, uh, Jeff Baker, my coworker. Um, he, re- Jeff did a story, um, kind of reporting. Sorry, I'm getting blown up on here. No, it's not, you're uh, everyone's excited about your appearance on the podcast. Yeah, um, he kind of, Jeff had reported that in 2009 and 2010, I think it was, that Kevin Mather and, um, Chuck Armstrong and a couple other executives were all part of a series of um, complaints filed by women for harassment, workplace misconduct, all these different things. And so they were at the Kevin especially was at the in the middle of a lot of these for lewd comments and behavior and such. And and really, basically, what happened is um, they they. settled out of court and with mm-hmm. non-disclosure agreements like i always kind of tell people the mariners are good at lo- they're not good at baseball but they're good at lawyering and um and so you know and mather like he had he assumed the presidency he was a chief financial officer and vice president of finance for a long time um and he took over as a president from chuck armstrong who at the time was somebody the mariners never wanted out there because they were always afraid of what he might say that was off color and you know, would get them in trouble. And they replaced him with Kevin Mather, who did the same. But Kevin was always kind of the business, the, the business guy. And then when John Stanton took over as owner uh, three years ago, they, you know, Kevin was promoted as president and they love ownership, love Kevin Mather because you have to have somebody that's kind of the ass, you know, that has to be the mean mm-hmm. guy, the hatchet guy. And Kevin Mather was really good at that. He was a cold, cold businessman. He had no filter as we've seen. And he just kind of operated in that way, and he relished kind of operating in that way, being the cold, hard business guy, holding baseball ops to certain things and, you know, budgets and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and really, I mean, they make they made a lot of money when that team was really bad and, you know, they were losing fans. They still made money because Kevin Mather was very good at business. And so that's kind of, you know, he, he wasn't well-liked throughout the organization for a variety of ways, how he treated people, how he talked just kind of the persona he gave off at times. His uh his interview really felt like the movie the big uh, uh the big uh what what was it a couple of years ago the about the financial crisis in 2009 the big short the yeah. big short where they're sitting there listening to these guys talking about shorting a bunch of people and he says why are they telling us this? He's like they're not telling us. They're bragging. And that's how that video came off. It was like he was so proud of himself by you know telling these people about uh service manipulation and how how easy and not to mention the weird undertones when it came to talking about players and translators. I mean, it's not just kind of bad. There wasn't a single thing he said that wasn't awful. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, yeah, the tone was bad. You know, like, you know, the 
the insinuations about Evan White and his contract and how the players thought of, you know, like kind of taking shots at the other players from complaining. And, and you know, honestly, he, he tells the story about the bullpen guy going, well, tell me where I can make $23 million. I'll sign right now. Well, if you looked at the Mariners' bullpen last year, you couldn't combine the bullpen to make twenty three to get twenty three million dollars worth of usage. You know, so it's like it just he he manipulated and embellished a lot. Like the story about Marco Gonzalez wasn't true on any level about shoving Mike Leak into a locker. Um, it, yeah, it just everything like the number of times he called um, Jared Kelnick like self-assured or confident, you know, in the way he said it, you know, he's going to bet on himself. We think he might be a superstar, whatever, you know, it's like, come on, man. Like you just don't say these things. And I mean, and I, again, like I'm sure he thought he's talking among friends and like, he can say these things and it's not, you know, I'm not sitting there holding a, a recorder in front of him, but you know, to be honest, like from a, from a journalistic standpoint, like I liked having Kevin Mather around because he told me a lot of stuff off the record. You know, mm-hmm. about this stuff. He gave me an idea because he liked to, you know, I think he liked to talk about how much he was in charge and how, right. you know, how he was making the decisions. Because I, I, I recall this and I thought about it like on the second time I'd listened to it. But last year uh, we were sitting at Team Open Park and and we're up in the press box. It's during the summer camp, you know, and they're doing in doing inner squad or whatever. And Kelnick had hit a couple bombs or whatever. And, uh, you know, doing Kelnick things. And I said, Hey man, you know, he's not making this easy for you. And he kind of just like, look, he goes, you know, as well as I do, he's not coming up this year. He's just not. And he goes, that doesn't matter what happens. He says, you have a better chance of playing left field for the Mariners than he does right now. And, and I mean, I knew why, I mean, like he can say it and of he course. can, and he, and he, he prefaced like, this is off the record, but you know, I mean, like from a look from a moralistic or whatever, like a you know the baseball or the baseball ethical aspect. Yeah, it's stupid and, and it's wrong to manipulate the service time. But from the Mariner standpoint and what they're trying to build and, and this rebuild that they're doing and trying to like you know establish a core group, losing Jared Kelenic after the twenty twenty five season would be catastrophic. But if you can manipulate it even by a little bit and keep him through 2027 when he's 27 years old, I mean, that's a huge deal. Those right. are prime years of Jared Kelnick. And I think, you know, one, they knew because they'd already broached the the contract extension offer with him and it was shot down quite quickly. But two, two I think they always kind of knew that Jared believes in betting on himself and that he's going to be in line for a massive payday when he reaches free agency. I mean, like, everybody said the same thing about Eric Hosmer when he was with the Royals. A lot of these guys, like, you know, you, you kind of know who the guys are. You know that, who wants to become a free agent. Yeah, and who wants yeah. to bet on themselves and are willing to bet on themselves. And so, yeah, th- so then if you definitely know that you have no chance of signing to an extension, then, yeah, you better play the service time game a little bit. I mean, again, it's wrong ethically, but, again, like, if I was a fan, like a true fan of the Mariners, and I, you know, I would be probably more upset if they did play him last year and did it just for whatever, you know, for less than above-board reasons. I mean, like, right. I, you know, I, I wouldn't – like, honestly, like, going in, I never thought he was ready last year. I didn't – I mean, I yeah, he, he – yeah, he mashed a bunch of pitchers at, in – um in the inner squad games, he didn't do that during Cactus League games. I mean, the, the Mariners are more of a victim of, of circumstance, too. Like, he would have started last season at double A, 
he would have been in AAA after two months. They probably would have maybe let him debut last year at the end. And then are they getting labeled as service time manipulators? No. But when the 2020 season is 60 games and every one day of service time is worth three overall, I mean, that gets pretty pretty dicey from a business standpoint. I mean, but they also had not made the playoffs for nearly two decades. Yeah. They were, and they only finished a couple games out of an expanded playoff situation last year. Yeah, and I mean, that is the other thing is like, I, you know, if they put Jerry Kelnick in the everyday lineup, from the very beginning, do they do they make the playoffs? Possibly. I mean, he's that good. We don't, you know, you don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's only played, I think, twenty one games above Double A, and there were times I thought in Cactus League and even in the inter squad games when he faced, you know, the real big league pitchers, not the the fringy guys, where he looked a little overwhelmed by some breaking stuff, which a, a ton of guys do. You know, he's not at he, that time. I think he was nine, or twenty years old. He's right. gonna look like that. Um, and, and I mean, honest, I don't think they ever thought that they would be in the that. I mean, one, they, you know, actually, I'm sure by the time they made the decision, because didn't they announce the, didn't they announce the expanded playoffs about an hour before the season officially started? Yes, right before. Yeah, and they had already sent Kelnick down at that point. You know, they'd already announced their lineup or their roster. But the one thing is too, though, I guess you could have waited whatever the requisite days would have been to you know get that extra year and brought him up. Right. And and what made it look worse from all standpoints is they I think they brought four outfielders to and they're like four Oh, they were playing guys out of position yeah, in the outfield yeah, at they, times. Yeah, they had like four outfielders on their forty man roster that were in the sixty man player pool because they had Julio and Jared and um all these younger guys. So yeah, they had a bunch of guys not on the roster and then the forty man roster guys they had were like Braden Bishop, Kyle Lewis, Jake Fraley. And I think one other guy and Fraley and Bishop played so poorly in summer camp that they didn't want to play him. So, yeah, they played a bunch of utility guys, Dylan Moore, Sam Hagerty, Tim Lopes in the outfield. And I mean, like if you're Jared Kelnick and you're like, well, how am I not better than these guys? These guys can't even catch a fly ball and they really don't hit. Why am I not up there? <laughs> and Kelnick's camp was like every time Jerry DePoto was asked about it, he would talk about the developmental aspects and the need for more development. And Kelnick's camp was like, how is he developing at the alternate training site when they don't even have enough guys to play real scrimmages, but maybe right. twice a week? You know, he gets, you know, like I think he was getting 15 at bats versus live pitching a week, maybe 16 at bats versus live pitching in a week. Like, how is that development? You know, how is he getting any better? And, and so when the story breaks itself and, you know, you're listening to this thing multiple times, Larry Stone's doing the same. Um what are the Mariners doing in terms of a response yeah, like coming from personally coming from a team that really knew how to build a PR disaster? Um, like, like what were the Mariners doing in response to what was going to be a PR disaster? Were they saying, we'll get back to you? Were they just brick walling you? Were, you know, were people kind of, you know, obviously I'm sure you're well connected to the organization. I'm sure some people were talking to you, but uh, a public facing, were the Mariners just kind of shutting it down and trying to figure out and, and, and kind of gathering the troops to figure out how to do this? Or, or, or what was their immediate world like? Yeah, they bunkered in. Like, you know, I was mm-hmm. texting with the, the PR staff, and they're like, look, we, you know, the ownership and stuff. And, like, so one of the main PR guys in DePoto, obviously they're down here. They met for several hours, and I think they are probably on a conference call with John Stanton, probably Kevin Mather, other the other PR up in Seattle trying to figure out what is their next course of action. And that was for several hours. I know that, you know, then you, you probably start calling in lawyers and you're, you know, Stanton said he was getting calls from the commissioner. 
I'm sure their sales department was getting calls from sponsors, all the stuff. And I think they're trying to also unpack like everything that was said and like go through every little detail of what he said and what this what this will mean and how this will get them in trouble um, and then go from there. You know, I, I honestly and I'd had some sources in, within the organization tell me, like, they're going to try and keep him because he just makes too much money. They're going to try and keep him. They think they can weather this. And, you know, and then Mather releases that statement late Sunday evening. And that's kind of what, like, I thought, OK, yeah, they, they might keep this guy because they, they had released that statement and it talked about moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, you know, when Kevin Mather went to bed that night, he had not been fired and he had not decided to resign. But I think he was told, like, you know, if this gets worse, you better be ready to resign because we're going to fire you if you don't. And I, I'm sure that's what, you know, and Stanton said that he that Mather had read some columns from Larry Stone and from uh, Rosenthal and some other guys saying he needed to be fired. And then, you know, the next morning came in and I think he said, you know, I, I'm willing to resign. You know, like I think I should resign because like, we can't make this work. Did he keep his ownership stake? That's what we don't know. I mean, that's I what I was walking. I was wondering if that was out you know, there. He yet. got the ownership stake by virtue of his promotion to the president's job. And I don't think it's a huge one, but I, and I don't know how, you know, he gets that. I mean, does he forfeit it to the majority or do they have to buy it off them? Because again, you're buying an ownership stake in a team that's probably valued at $2 billion. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a nice little parachute either way, even if he did. And I'm almost certain almost every executive and CEO contract that you've seen, regardless of firing or um, re- resignation, they have certain they riders. Fall, they, they all fall up. Yeah, they, they have certain riders in there that go back and evaluate how many dollars were accrued while they were there in that position. And they get some sort of buyout off of that. Because even if it's for cause, and it's obviously for cause, when they would have fired him, but like I don't, I don't know. I mean, but by letting him resign, I'm guessing that allowed him to get some sort of balloon bonus off the top. Ryan, I got a question for you. When you're in this situation as a writer, you're a beat writer, of course, you're running everything for the Seattle Mariners. When a scenario like this pops up, something that's very controversial and. You know, what does that do to you? You know, you always are probably trying to make the team look like they're in a decent light, even the fact that they're not, they're, you know, of any professional sports team, the longest drought of any any team to a playoff. But, I mean, what does that do to your relationships at all? Is it make it a little bit contentious that you have to report on something like this and give your honest opinion, or do you feel a little more free in doing that? You know, like, I don't know. I think the Mariners think that I'm not – I never put them in a good light. I've, I've had a few <laughs> discussions with people there. Um, the, when you're Jerry DePoto and I got into it at the winter meetings and about two hours later, he was in the hospital for a blood clot in his chest. So like a couple, oh, I remember of, that. a couple of scouts are like, what did you say in there? I heard you guys yelling back and forth. I was like, I didn't do anything. You know, the clot was there already. Um, but <laughs> no, I like, I, I mean, I don't, you know, that's like, for me, I, I don't really care if the Mariners like me, you know, in that regard or like whatever I, I write what I think I need to write. And the bigger difference, you know, I do have friends that work for the Mariners. They're good friends, people that work in the, um, in the, um, uh, PR department or in sales, you know, and, and like, I consider some of the people that work on the baseball side to be friends and, and, or more than acquaintances, you know? And so that's, you know, and, and I think that's some level, I understand that that what Kevin Mather is, isn't how they are, but at the same time, they all have to wear it. You know, like I think that's what Jerry DePoto says. We all have to wear this, you know, it's, it's the Mariners. Um, and so in that regard, no, I don't really worry. Um, but like, you're just, 
one thing like that, when it's controversial, and you know, I mean, like, where we're at politically in this world, I knew there'd be backlash, and I'd be like, oh, a guy gets fired for saying the truth, and, you know, or what about his right to free speech, which I always tell people, like, dude, you flunked U.S. government. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, free, <laughs> I mean, like, the first thing that, insane. Yeah, my, the, it's right. my weird, yeah, least favorite thing to hear. Yeah, He's the, not been charged with a federal crime. Yeah, the, the freedom of speech, your freedom of speech doesn't mean guarantee of employment. You know, it like, just means uh, he's not going to prison for saying it. Yeah, right. I mean, I was like, and so I'm just sitting there, and like, I go, and then this is what, you know, I've had several emails and stuff, and this is always, I just say, like, look, let's say Scott Service, Jerry DePoto, or anybody that works directly under Kevin Mather went on a Zoom call that was recorded and said all of these things in the exact same way he said it. How fast would he fire them? Because he wouldn't let them resign. I can guarantee you that. He would fire them before they could resign. So I was like, and that, and that was my kind of, issue with the whole John, you know, and we had a, a zoom call with John Stanton, the owner, and he got a little miffed at me the way I was asking questions. But like one of the things he kept saying is like, well, Kevin's thoughts and views don't represent our leadership thinking and strategy. And I'm like, going, if anybody's, you know, how can he not, he's the president CEO. Right. He has to approve everything that Jerry DePoto wants to do from a financial standpoint. He it's comments, his the comments of the comments of the leader do not respect them. Yeah, the I'm like, show. come on, and it's like, yeah, says the guy, you know, says the guy captaining the Titanic. I mean, like, let's. This is so. It was so absurd. I'm like, I, I just don't understand how you can sit there and say that it doesn't reflect the organization. He is the central driving force behind the organization from a financial standpoint of what, how money and dollars get doled out and what strategy long term. I mean, he had to he and Stanton had to approve this rebuild. Like Jerry Jerry DePoto just doesn't get to start, you know, trading off players and, and saying, oh, we're gonna tear it down and rebuild. I mean ownership and the, the people financing it have to approve it. That's why it was never done before in the previous ownership group would never tear it down that way. What's so, bothering me more is not just the fact that they're saying, well this doesn't re represent the leadership of the Mariners. No, in fact, it represents the leadership of pretty much every organization in baseball. This is just the first time we finally saw it said out loud. Yeah, I mean, like the the whole the collusion, the um, the commodity thinking of players, you know, that they're, they're widgets and not real people, uh, the impersonal nature, the cold business side of it. The Mariners gave it a name and a face. I mean, that's you know, and I, if you're Manfred, and I, I mean. And don't even get me started on him. But if you're Manfred, you, you're not happy. I mean, like, what are you doing? You know, you're going into a CBA year. And right. I mean, as easily as, well, and I know they got a new lawyer, but as easily as the MLBPA could screw up things in the past and that stuff, this is just like a fastball down the middle. Like, here, take it. You know, cookie, we'll have this. I mean, like, you don't think that Tony Clark and his lawyers have that video recorded and have all that stuff? I mean, and they'll have what Kelnick said about the meetings that they had where he was told he was never coming up that year, no matter what happened. I mean, all that stuff is just, it's just further proof. I mean, like, you know, I mean, that's the reason, like, while all the, all the evidence pointed to the fact that the Cubs, you know, messed with Chris Bryant's service time right up and how they called him up. And but, still, but still won the grievance. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was no smoking gun. Yeah. Can you imagine if this, this smoking gun, gun existed? I mean, like, and, and so like, and. And Kelnick and Brody Schofield, his agent, going to bingo Bob Nightingale and telling him this stuff and, and not me and, you know, and not <laughs> returning my phone calls, which, yes, I am bitter, not returning my <laughs> phone calls on this. I, I mean, like, like 
they put, you know, and I talked to DePoto about this. I mean, they put DePoto in a spot where they are ultimately scrutinized on everything they do with this kid moving forward. Sure. I mean, if he hits 230 but hits four homers in Cactus League play and they don't put him on the team, just on the opening day roster, people are going to scream like, Here you know. We go. You know, people are going to scream, this is this is service time manipulation. Or if he, you know, like if he hits 300, I mean, or 400 with a bunch of bombs, which Jared Kelnick in the FU state will probably do because he is that kind of motivated kid and he is that talented, then they, they have no choice. But like if he hits 100 and you don't put him on the team, or if he hits 100 and you do put him on the team, everybody's like, oh, yeah, see, they're just trying to make amends for what they mm-hmm. did wrong. And like, so there is like this weird gray area. And if they were to send him down, say like, okay, he hits a hundred and you think and you say, look, he, he just needs more time at triple a, we got to leave him down there for a month. I don't care if he gets hot at triple a in the first three weeks and he's so hot. You want to call him up the day after the service time threshold is met. No, you got to wait longer. Cause again, that looks bad. I mean, basically Kevin Mather's comments opened up every possibility of a grievance or a complaint for everything that they do with this kid. And I mean, and really, even though Mather is gone, it extends to Logan Gilbert. It extends to Julio Rodriguez. Any of those other prospects that are kind of like the the high-level prospects that they, you know, service time, free agency, Super 2 could be an issue. I mean, like, it opens up to so much criticism and so much um, doubt because of all the things he said. Now, you're, you're down there with the team, and obviously it's a very different situation as far as your access. Um, you know, you don't have clubhouse access. You're, you're kind of being kept distance from the team. Are you still able to sense a vibe right now? And if so, how much of a cloud is is kind of in camp right now because of the situation? I mean, I think, you know, baseball players, as Cody will attest, have the ability to move forward quickly, you know, to wash it, to compartmentalize failure, to actually compartmentalize or – um, maybe subdue success knowing that it can be fleeting. But when when this stuff gets personal, when you feel like you've had personal affronts or uh, you know professional things that have done to you, that, that lingers a little bit more. Like today, Marco Gonzalez walked by me and I made fun of his hair and he goes, it's a very boring haircut. You know, because Stan called him very boring. You know, he's a very boring <laughs> haircut, you know. And and then, so I, I, so I, today, I'm back there watching live BPs and Kelnick is on the field and uh and he, so they got Hersan Batista throwing you know he throws about 100 but it's straight as a string who he's in the Mets deal with you know or the the Canodio mm-hmm. so they're throwing him and one of the clubbies yells at at uh Kelnick he's like 200 bucks for every bomb you hit off him and like he's like you don't want that bet and uh and I think it was the second pitch Kelnick just smokes a fastball and it was 400 feet easy just to dead, dead right center. I mean, just got the bad head out and hammered it and everybody starts laughing. And then that, and so I, I'm videoing, I get the video. So I stop cause I want to tweet it out. The next pitch, he goes over the batter's eye oh, and everybody's like, you made a bad bet. And then, <laughs> and so Kelnick sees me standing over there by the fence where I'm recording and he walks over and he goes, uh, he goes, I hope you recorded that shit. I was like, Jesus. Yeah, I got oh, it. Yeah, I mean, he's just like, he goes, you're tweeting it, aren't you? And I go, yeah. And, I, and then he kind of talked to me a little bit, you know, like, just like, I said, hey, man, I want to talk to you yesterday. You don't want to talk because I'm, I'm done talking about it. He goes, you know how I feel. You've written it before. You were, he goes, you've written it last year. You knew what was happening. And I was like, all right. 
And so, but he was just, um, he was, a. Uh, He's very Jared. I mean, like, I, I love covering him. I, I do because he's interesting. He's cocky. Uh, he's really talented. And yeah. I just don't get that. You know, you don't get that. He, There is an edge. He's got the, the whole – he's got the Johnny Lawrence, you know, the William Zabka character, you know, like, swagger from the old Zeta 80 movies, you know. Like yeah, I mean, Cobra for Kai somebody who I saw – Yeah. Yeah, for, for somebody who I saw up close, it's a, it's a Bregman-like swag. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like – and there's a touch of being, you know, like they're shorter too, little Lil Man syndrome mm-hmm. mixed in. Yeah, it's a, yeah, I just was like, yeah, this is, like, you're, you're, you're straight out of Cobra Kai, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, how does this end? Um, does this, does this kind of stick with the Mariners all year? Is it going to be, like you said, this kind of microscope on how they're dealing, you know, not only with Kelnick, but, but with, with, you know, like you talked about, like with, with J-Rod and, and maybe Logan Gilbert, like, is this going to be, you know, is there going to be a, 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 you know, three by five inch column called Kelnick watch in the times every day. Is this going to be a constant thing in the, in, in kind of like stuck in their craw for the, for the 2021 season? I mean, I don't think it'll go away um, because it just, it, it's lingering there. And like you said, the service time aspects of it all, you just, I mean, it's going to be monitored. It's going to be monitored by all the agents and, and MLB and players. I think I talked to some players and, and like one guy said, he's like, yeah, you know what? He goes, it's our team now. I'm, we're so sick of listening to this stuff. And, you know, again, they're – and they're angry too. Like like the players on this team, like Marco and these guys are upset because they listen to Stan, or to Mather talk about how he tried to manipulate the free agent market. And he wasn't going to give – he wasn't going to spend. And we're not spending on this. And we're not doing right. that. And they're going to come back hat in hand. Well, Taiwan Walker is one of their friends. And they wanted Taiwan back, Walker back on this team. And most of the pitchers feel like, you know, they jobbed him, you know, like they just manipulated the whole situation, trying to get him back to save a million dollars here, a million dollars there, when they're already spending $20 million in dead money for people like Robinson Cano and Jay Bruce and owed money. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is an organization that paid $18 million for Sean Figgins not to play for two seasons. I mean, like they, the players... Like, that's just as bad to them. I mean, like, the insulting stuff about the interpreter, the veiled racist stuff about Julio's English. Yes, that's bad, too. But, like, the, like the idea that they're not doing enough to help them win and help speed up this 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 process. Because, like, I've, like I've written, their, their top pitching prospects are two years away. Uh, you know, Logan Gilbert is close. But I think Emerson Hancock also ultimately could be better, and even George Kirby. Those guys sure. are two years away from being here. Uh, because they didn't really throw this year and you know and then you know julio whether you know there are still some flaws in his game he's not here next year for certain you don't know that he'll play his way up and and you don't know what taylor Trammell is and like going out and and spending on taiwan walker and giving colton wong a little bit more money or the extra year that he wanted i mean that makes your team it like i hate the floor ceiling thing but it raises your floor of where you start from so quickly by right. just adding a legit big league player. Like, the Mariners brag about run prevention. Are you telling me that, like, you put an infield that has Kyle Seeger, J.P. Crawford, Colton Wong, and Evan White on the field? I mean, that's that's run prevention right there, you know? And the players hear this, and they read it, and they know that they're going cheap, and they're trying to save dollars. And also, you've got your president saying this is your philosophy for free agent free agents and how they're going to spend, they're going into the biggest year of free agency next year and they have this lingering over them. Like everything about this, it just casts doubt on whether these guys actually want to win. 
And I do think they want to win. I just don't think, one, they know how to win. They don't have any idea of the commitment it takes to win in terms of a financial commitment or just other things. And, and they they're, they don't have the courage to truly run the risk, like throw it out there. I'm not saying you have to spend $200 million on the free agent market, but, you know, be aggressive and, and have some courage in a time when, yeah, financially it's not great, but go, you know, like. Nobody wants to hear about and like that's only one normal thing that Kevin Mather said in that entire thing is nobody wants to hear about how billionaire owners are losing money. And he then he went on to say, but we didn't lose as much as everybody else. But we're not going to spend any more than anybody else. But we didn't lose as much as anybody else. It's like it's it's like everything that he said, it just verifies it. Like, you know, when I and I somebody was saying, well, you know, they lost money and you're a man for talk about it. And baseball owners by nature because they are good businessmen they do not want to operate in debt and they don't want to incre- incre- they don't want to incur more debt you know or operate in debt and all this other stuff they, they want to operate in a way that it keeps them solvent and moving forward and so there is risk involved but as i pointed out that most of the fans that go to these games 90 percent of this this country lives in a state of constant debt we all have debt you know, and most of us will die with debt of some sort. And yet they expect the people living in this debt to pay for overpriced parking, which he mentions he can charge whatever in that video, 30, 40, 50 dollars, yep. overpriced beers, overpriced tickets. And, you know, the average family of four, you take them to a game, it's four hundred dollar investment if you want any decent seats and you have to do this stuff right. And and they're afraid to take on debt or afraid to risk dollars or capital to make a product better, but they still expect people to use money that they don't have to pay for stuff and go to their games. And it's just so hypocritical. And it shows a lack of awareness from that ownership group. And I mean, they really, you know, they've been trending anyways. They've lost the benefit of the doubt and with the fan base and any cachet they might have had with the fan base. Now, Kellen well, comes up, hits a bunch of bombs. Julio comes up, hits a bunch of bombs. They get good again. Yeah, they all come running back. Right. But, well, you you mentioned how this is affecting basically how it's affecting the Seattle Mariners and everything. But on the by, on the bigger picture for baseball itself, how do you see this actually going into this next CBA? How you mentioned we touched on it briefly. Tony Clark and his lawyers clearly have this video. They're definitely going to use this. But really, do you think this is going to unify the players even more so? And we're going to be looking at a strike in 2022. I, I yeah, I, I don't see how there isn't a work stoppage of some sort. I, I really don't. I mean, they're so far apart. And it was so petty and pugilistic, you know, going into trying to figure out the 2020 season. And even like the stuff that they did this year when it should have been easier to figure mm-hmm. out what was going on. Like, you know, it sucked that they only played 60 games and it was a miracle that they got through it. And it was weird at times. But then you had you had a great World Series and, and a, a pretty cool postseason. And, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you get back to just bickering nonstop and – you know, like the gaming of, oh, we're going to release this late and I'm going to release this statement, you know, and they're, you know, and we all know that like they're sending all this information to the national guys. Like when that stuff, like they leak early on, yeah. like last year, they would leak stuff. The, the MLB would leak stuff to the national guys and the guys would write it and they would be such lowball, absurd offers. And the players just couldn't help themselves. They would respond with how stupid this was or however. And for whatever reason, and I, I've discussed this before, but there is an inherent 
deal, and I don't know if it's jealousy or some psychological deal where fans oftentimes will be bitter at players in this. You know, every bit- single time. Yeah, they're bitter yes. at the, they're bitter at the players because it's like, well, I'd do your job for free, you know, and all this other stuff. Mm. Well, I'd love to do this for whatever. They, they I've had that I've had that conversation with so many people and I'd be like, listen, I understand that you'd play my do my job for free, yet you're offering free labor and they're not taking you up on it. Yeah, so Yeah, and it's like right. yeah. And so it's like, would you do your job for free? How about you do your job for free? It's like I you know, I've worked to get here and it's cause they people say that oh, I'd do your job for free, you gotta go to games. It's like, well it's a little bit more of my job than that, you know, but <laughs> but, but so, like they did that. They turned they turned the uh you know, they by players commenting right away on some of those low ball offers, you know, fans were like, Oh, shut your whiny mouths, you're spoiled babies and stuff. You know, and, and and then they're like, Oh, a bunch of millionaires complaining. I'm like, there ain't that many millionaires in baseball if you go back and look at the percentages. And then what they were also trying to do was like the the one kind of taxing one, pit the the um the the younger players, the guys under club control right against the veterans like trout and those guys who didn't want to play or you know say well, we want i don't want to do it this way or i don't want to do it that way and so i mean it was i mean you, you could see it coming and what they were doing and finally the players wised up and said no you know they just started doing the when and where because they got tired of it and and whoever organized that was like the smartest thing to do i think it was when and where you know yeah, we'll show right. up and, and that's just a precursor and then like this year they they do the early thing and they leak all the stuff about salary cap or shutting down or starting late. And it's just like none of it, none of the negotiations are done in good faith. It's all just angling and, and everything else. And that's why I think it's so broken and there's no trust in either side that like, you know, even if one side is, is willing to accept something or, you know, change their demands, the other side would be like, well, why are they doing it? There's got to be another angle. They're screwing mm-hmm. us somehow. And I, mm-hmm. I think you're just at the point where nothing will be agreed upon. I mean, my God, they can't even agree upon the DH. Like, they use the designated hitter as a bargaining tool right. to try. I mean, like, and like, if I'm Nelson Cruz, I'm just taking a bat to everyone. Like, you know what? <laughs> I, you know, because I mean, like, how much money do you think that costs Nelson Cruz? You're telling me that there wasn't like, a national. Half, half his market away. Yeah, a National League team wouldn't have dumped. You know, eighteen, nineteen million dollars on Nelson Cruz. Mm-hmm. You know, Marcelo Zuna. You know, Schwarber. Some of these guys. It's just like, come on! But they they don't do it. You know, they just don't. It's just it's so stupid. And 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 I like the game, and I hate to see when it gets reduced to this. And I understand both sides. I I'm almost always going to take the player side first because I have a problem with authority. But yeah, this is it's just so <laughs> bad. Hey, I, I say it all the time, and I'll continue to say it. The money's there. Either the owners get it or the players get it. Those yeah. are your only two choices. Yeah. You have no other option. Either the owners are going to get it or the players are going to get it. Make your pick. Yeah, and like, and again, because most of us don't operate on this level, um, like, the owners are billionaires. Some of the players are millionaires. And the difference is, like, they can't just fathom, you know, like, the difference. How much more a million is than a billion? Again, it's, like, the not yeah, understanding yeah. the uh, – it's not understanding the how the how the First Amendment works in freedom of speech. Like, you know, it's just, like, you just tell somebody a, a million seconds is 12 days, a billion seconds is 31 years. I mean, it's just yeah. – you know, it's that's the difference. All the owners are billionaires. No players are billionaires. But all the owners are. I mean, like, 
Yeah. There's, rich, there's rich and there's wealthy. I, I mean, mean, you've seen uh, other things in marketing. I mean, last week, MLB put out like three different tweets. Hey, $600 million infield on the left side of San Diego. What could you do with $600 million? I'm like, that's, oh, stop it. That's so petty. We know what you're doing. And, and, and the, the MLB didn't seem to mention the fact that the Padres season ticket uh, count went up by like 52% when they signed Tatis to the extension and all the other stuff. Right. They're making money because of this. Yeah. And, I mean, like it's, it's just, and then, you know, they don't ever, they never, like the owners are never going. That's why I don't think a, a true salary cap will ever happen is because no. the owners will never truly open up their books to get a, a real determination. Like, like the, like Mather was talking about that thing. Oh, you know, for some reason, fans watch us on our TV, and, and it's their network. It's their network, and that's why they have it. And it's why the Mariners, because they own Root Sports, and Root Sports has the Big Sky Football Conference where my alma mater, Montana, plays. The Big Sky Conference encompasses six states, and Root Sports gets to go into all those cable packages, and the Mariners right. can claim territory. But that's why Portland will never get a team because the Mariners will fight it to the end because they believe that that's their territory. Right. And, you know, all these things come into it. So, but every dollar that the mayor or that the the Mariners get off of non baseball programming, they just signed a deal to do the, the Seattle Kraken games, the first NHL team in in Seattle. I mean, that's all revenue that does not have to be shared with other teams that's going yep. into their coffers. And again, they signed it this year, but they're not spending any money. So I just don't. Ugh. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you for bringing your bubbly cheer to the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I just, I'm just a, I'm a joy. <laughs> if you want to uh, follow Ryan and his just the, the constant the constant re- reaffirmations of positivity on Twitter, which is a place where all you find is positivity, he is at Ryan Divish, all one word, R-Y-A-N-D-I-V. ISH, Ryan, thanks for coming on. Stay safe in Arizona. And uh, Ryan, I love your work, by the way. I really <laughs> yeah. do. I, I really do. And I'm going to go cleanse my palate by watching Requiem for a Dream. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> see, what I do, to, I do is I watch the first 20 minutes of Casino and the last 10 minutes of Casino when the, <laughs> when the House of the Rising Sun starts. Like the other night, I'm sitting there drinking. Like it was the after the Mather night. I'm drinking Japanese whiskey and I watch the first 20 minutes. And then the last tw- last ten, and it's like, and I was com- telling my buddies that Kevin Mather was the Kansas City grocer that wrote down all the bad stuff that they were doing, and then had the heart attack right before he got arrested. I was like, I know exactly. Oh, you oh, just oh. you just described my entire night two nights ago. I sat there with some Nika coffee grain, and I just watched the uh, the complete assassination scene in Goodfellas, where just everybody oh, yeah. d- bumped off, and then I turn it off. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's. I mean, because that's the only. I mean, like the rest of the parts, like in Casino, and even like in Goodfellas and stuff like that. I don't need to watch that. I, you know, it's even like, uh, what's the Boston cop one that Scorsese did? Where the, where the oh, yeah, yeah. oh, Departed. Yeah. I mean, the, like the, the good parts of the Departed are early. Then when it gets, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm all about that. I just pick the spots and movies I want to watch. And then, you know, it's like <laughs> Dumb and Dumber when they're actually driving to Aspen. You know, and that I watch those scenes and then turn it off. So what, what's, what's your Japanese whiskey recommendation? You're the Suntory guy, Hakushi, what are you doing? I got um, some Awai, the Mars Awai. Ooh, I, I, got a, I got two nice bottles of that. Yeah, and then I got another one I got down here. The one good thing about Arizona is they have minimal liquor tax. Nice. And so, yeah, and so you can get a decent bottle for about 50 bucks. And uh, I went and I went, there's a total wine right next to where I stay at. So, like, the other day, a bunch of the baseball writers – um, chipped in and I went to the 
the Total Wine and bought the Mariners PR staff about a hundred dollars worth of booze to take over because they just been wearing <laughs> it the last few days. <laughs> You're a good oh, man. Yeah. You're a good man, right? Appreciate you coming on. Hopefully, at some point, uh, you and I can maybe share a glass, Jeff. Yeah, sounds good to me. Okay, have a good one. All right, see you guys. Our musical guest this week, you're listening to a band called Gladly Beyond. I like any band that has a comma in their name. It's Gladly, comma, Beyond. Uh, three dudes, Josh, Josh, and Jimmy from Detroit doing instrumental dissonant stuff. I really like them. Check them out. You can find them on Spotify. You can find them on Bandcamp. And uh, and thanks to them. If you have a band or you're your friends in a band or whatever, and you want to have their music featured on the podcast, uh, just email me, uh, chinmusic at fangraphs.com. And then, you know, we feature an indie band every week uh cody real quick on the mariners when you are a player like how much are team and, and you know we've seen i think we've seen players be more vocal lately um about this kind of thing but like how are front offices seen are they just seen as a bunch of assholes or 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 what it depends on the front office i think um there have been front offices i played for that really have felt like the enemy and mm-hmm. I played for front offices that didn't. I remember one time uh, when I was with the Padres at the time, uh, A.J. Hinch was our assistant GM at the time, and I was driving down to San Diego from uh, Santa Monica three days a week to do catching drills with him down at Petco Park. And I remember he was in the middle of arbitration. Uh, specifically, I can't remember the player. I'm just going to say, yes, the player at the time. might have been someone like Will Venable. And I remember watching A.J. come back down to the cage to work with me and he looked like he just went through the the absolute ringer. And I'm like, what's going on, man? He's like, we're in arbitration. We were just upstairs with Will Venables people and our people. And we love Will. Love him. And I just had to sit there for two hours and tell him why he's so bad and not worth the money he wants. This is, it was like, that was the nightmare experience. I hated every second of that. And you got to, yeah, it, I can only imagine what that's like. Especially a lot of, a lot of front office guys are... You know, I think there's a little bit more respect for front office guys that have played and have been in the shoes of the players. I think uh, the advance of metrics over the last years has brought in a lot of outsiders that don't treat the players quite like their people as much as they are commodities. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where the disconnect is. And that's not everybody. I'm not saying everybody that's very deep into metrics is that. I'm very deep into metrics. But I do understand that there's a human side of this game that I think a lot of people are a little short-sighted about. That they forget that these are players on the field that do have human emotions, that do go through everyday grinds, that do have aches and pains that could affect their numbers 
numbers. So the numbers are great. That's my, my biggest my the, my biggest pet peeve in baseball is anyone that says that they're data driven. Data driven, I think, is the worst thing you can be in baseball because you're eliminating the most important aspect of baseball, and that's intangibles that are human. I think it's very important to be data informed. I think you need to have every ounce of information at your disposal to make a human decision. Yeah, I, mean, I, I used to say this a lot to, to even, I said this before, I worked in baseball, I said it to the staff as well, like you just got to remember these are human beings, these are not Stratomatic cards. Mm-hmm. You, know, you and, can't just shuffle them in and expect them to, to perform exactly the same like the dice say. And I think for the last 10 years, it's it's thrown really just a new wrench of contention between the players' association and Major League Baseball, because I remember, I remember they think the it's being used. They think it's being used against them to, to, to very to, much to, so to and, decrease and, their value. Yeah, and and they're and you gotta admit they're not wrong. They they really aren't. There was a, it is at times. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a big scare about wearable technology in baseball because. Oh, yeah. That wearable technology that's monitoring a heart rate. Oh, well, and, th- and there's a lot of phrases. You see it leaked into the press. You uh, Two years ago, the, the new phrase that they wouldn't stop using, specifically for Anthony Rendon, was, hey, man, he's a slow heart rate guy. I'm like, there mm-hmm. it is. There's the buzz phrase. They're getting it out there now while they can. They want that to become the new vernacular. Low heart rate guy so that they can use in arbitration his heart rate increases in big moments. That's to me, that was just a pure ploy. And it made me infuriated because it was just so lazily done. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I, I think we need to find a way to eliminate the use of the of, of anyone who uh, refers to a player as an asset. Yeah, I think it's just an ugly way to do it. And that I yeah. think that just adds a whole new dynamic of distrust, which is unfortunate because it's not like everyone doesn't have the same goal to win and make money. Every, there's no reason that everyone can't be on the same page. It's just, but it's always been, I mean, since basically since nine, the early 1900s, it's always been us versus them. And that's just unfortunate. And it's only gotten worse. Um, let's get to the emails. Again, if you have an email and you want it right on the show and you want to answer your questions, just send something to chinmusic at fangrafts.com. We read them all. We answer some of them. Uh, first email came from Jack. And Jack asked, what's the fastest a deal during your tenure got done? Was it ever a text and 15 minutes later the deal was done? Yes, exactly that. Um, so the longest trade I ever a part of was actually the first trade I was ever a part of. And I was actually a part of it before my official start day. It was already, hey, um, they were sending emails to my Gmail account. Hey, we're talking to Oakland, um, like who are players you like there. And that was the deal that netted us Chris Carter, Max Dassey, and Brad Peacock. But it didn't get done, if I remember right, till January. So technically that deal took four months. Hmm. But the trade deadline, my first trade deadline, 2013... Um, it feels like we're done. Um, you know, but Norris has been traded. We've got the deal done with the Marlins. It feels like we're done. And the Royals text us like, Hey, would you talk Justin Maxwell who you big athletic outfielder with some pop, um, and big holes in his swing, uh, was an everyday player for the Astros as a, you know, but would not be probably an everyday player on a team that wasn't losing 120 games. And we said, of course, we'll talk about Justin Maxwell, but it's also 245, and the deadline's at three. And they go, fine, here's a list of players. Pick one and we'll do it. And and they gave me the list of players. And I looked at it and I said, I said, I, I was very tempted by a couple of guys. But the guy we ended up going with was, was, was a right here named Kyle Smith, who actually I, maybe it would have turned out. like He was pitching pretty well 
for the Astros and, and then his elbow went pop and he was never the same. But like it was literally like we got the text at like two forty five and at two fifty five the trade was submitted to to to, to the league. Um, so that was like it was a ten minute trade. And hmm. you know, you you never got traded, but were do you ever were you ever I did get traded once just Did that. you get traded? I got traded from Kansas City to Colorado. Okay. And were you ever like involved in like a trade rumor? Did you ever like start getting texts or anything about the rumor worlds? Just always, hey, you might be the player to be named later. And it was okay. always from it was like always from my agent. Like, hey, uh-huh. Padres are making a trade with the Indians. Uh you're I've been informed your name has been mentioned once or twice. Or hey, the Royals and I remember I heard about the Royals asking about me a couple years earlier. Uh and I was just like, Oh, okay. So it was just uh I never believed anything until it actually happened. Because mm-hmm. I've seen too many things that just every possible rumor. I, I I went through seven years with the San Diego Padres where you heard, heard every July, here comes the fire sale, guys. Here it comes. And it never came. <laughs> uh, next email came from Justin. And I, it was still funny. I actually remember this happening. Justin emailed, uh, back in 2017, I was at a Chapo Trap House show in Chicago, and I said hello to you between shows and let you know how much your last podcast meant to me. I thought you were a little taken aback when I mentioned I knew who you are, which I understand. Um, for those who don't know, Chapo Trap House is a podcast. It is a political podcast, and it, it leans uh, very far to the left. Uh, and uh, Justin finishes with, with, after that interaction, I wondered if your politics ever left led to any sort of tough situations within baseball. Did you ever feel like you had to hold back for fear of backlash on social media from fans or writers or et cetera? In general, was it difficult to have liberal politics in a sport that is generally conservative? It's good to have you back. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the word liberal. I think because I myself, you know, more lefty, but um, I kept my politics to myself. If politics came up, I wasn't ashamed or afraid to speak up about how, where my politics stand. Um, you know, I, at the same time, I didn't feel like I was here to, to make trouble for anyone. You know, I, 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 it's, I've made, made it known that after the Astros won the World Series, I turned down an invitation to the White House because I didn't want any part of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't go stand somewhere with a sign and scream or anything like that. I, I simply emailed Jeff Luno. I said, hey, I appreciate the invitation. I don't want to go. I don't want anything to do with this. I'm just going to travel that day. Uh, and, and quietly just didn't go. Um, but, you know, if you had to, you know, had to meet with some... You know, sort of hitting coach and I knew he was a Trump guy I would, let's just talk baseball I would you know just avoid it and just talk baseball we have work to do you know we have baseball work to do and there's no reason to you know you, you got to do your job and yeah if I put it aside he's going to put it aside we're not going to you know lead off with anything like that it didn't really come up that much you know, you were in I don't want to go to your BRF page and count you were in a lot of clubhouses in your life clubhouses are very diverse places um normally not politically yeah, <laughs> good point. I, um, I, I myself am far more left. I am a Jewish guy from Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a very liberal community with a lot of other people who happen to be the exact type of Jewish person I am. In that, I am Jewish, but I'm not. I'm not very practicing. I don't. I'm probably, quite frankly, after all said and done, a little more agnostic or atheist even. But I appreciate my Jewish heritage very much, and I never realized what a big deal that was until I left Los Angeles. Well, so let uh, me ask you the same question Justin did. So I wondered if your politics ever led to tough situations within baseball. Did you ever feel like you just had to hold back for fear of backlash from fans, writers, or, or, or people you were working with? Uh, I felt it a little bit more for certain organizations than I did others. Rockies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Rockies. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, for the most part, uh, it, it, 
it led to a colorful debate because you know baseball players they're not the brightest bunch um you get a few come on you get a few of course you get a few but i mean on the whole of a 25 man roster i'd say you'd have six or seven guys who were pretty bright and then the others were a little more hey let's go play fortnite for the next 14 hours um <laughs> But that's just that's just the dynamic. I've had some great debates that were really funny. I've had some debates that got heated. I've had just simple conversations. Um, it was funny because I never wanted to debate anybody until they just always wanted to debate me. Yeah, they just they needed to. She's like, no, 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 come on, Deck, you're just one of them California lives. Let's hear about it. And I'll never forget. I had a teammate who wanted to debate me all the time. Now he was very he was very right right wing, but he was very reasonable to to talk politics with and sometimes he would go so so hard in the paint on something that i knew for a fact he did not believe in he just wanted to stir the pot and see what he can get out of me uh so there was one time it was the day after it was literally the day after uh gay marriage was legalized which i was a very very big proponent of i was very yes thank you a long time coming um, but I remember he showed up and he is not against gay marriage at all. He just wanted to push my buttons and see what I would do. Mm -hmm. And so he just says to me, he's like, well, De well, deck, well, now that, uh, gay, gay marriage is legal. I bet you're pretty happy. And I said, yes, I am. I'm very happy. And he said, well, I guess I should be able to marry my dog then. Huh? I said, what? He's like, <laughs> if you can marry whoever you want, you can, I should be able to marry my dog. And he just sits there and goes, because deck marriage is about procreation. If you cannot have a child and raise a family, then you should not be able to get married. And I just sat there and I stared at him for like 10 seconds. I said, what about women that are infertile? Say they had like an operation, they were young or an accident and they can't have a child. Are, is that woman not allowed to get married? And he just stared at me and he's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, have, I have lost this argument, Cody. I will see you tomorrow. <laughs> he, walked, he walked out of the room. <laughs> I mean, did you find politics in the clubhouse to be something rarely discussed? I'm not. Yeah, too often, mainly because uh, there's a lot more. Um, how do I put it? There's a lot more people who are believing in believe in QAnon stuff than I care to admit. Uh huh. Uh, and that's not something that was ever fun to deal with. I dealt with a lot of teammates who, I right when ugh, I hate that I'm. This is this is a very touchy subject, obviously. But after Sandy Hook, I had so many teammates that thought it was a hoax, and I was right. just nauseated. It was just it was one of the worst experiences that that day, particular day was one of the worst experiences I've ever had in the clubhouse. Um, because I'm just like, guys, are you you cannot you stop, please. Um, so yeah, there were times I wouldn't say it ever got me in trouble, except for Colorado. But outside of that, it's been pretty good. Yeah. Uh, next question comes from David. David says, uh, the Astros did away with a lot of in-person scouting, uh, which is true on the pro side. Uh, I realize a lot of teams have done this, uh, but they seem to be the most prominent. One of the responses to that was that they will have a hard time identifying makeup. Did you find this to be the case? I always laugh a little when I hear this criticism, just because some of the scouts and execs that evaluate this sort of stuff might not be exactly progressive themselves. Of course, you don't need to be a good person to be a baseball player, but I'm wrong to thinking it's ironic when I hear this. Um, it depends on how you define makeup. I don't really care about a player's politics when I'm doing a makeup dig, and I don't think in-person stuff really hurt us too much on makeup as much as in-person stuff. In-person scouting, it's great to have guys in, at, at the park watching game, but it's also great to have guys at the ballpark networking with people. So they are people, those are people that they can talk to in the future when we're doing these makeup digs. I had a scout, um, he's still in baseball, who was kind of fresh off the field um, and had a, a, a long 
kind of journeyman career, played with a lot of orgs, knew a lot of people, very outgoing, friendly guy, had friends everywhere. And I could just tell him, hey, can you dig on this player? And within 20 minutes, he would call me back and, and tell, tell me about five ex-teammates he spoke to about him and exactly what you're getting. And, you know, this kind of thing is, you know, my question, always question is, is he going to fit in the clubhouse? Is he going to work hard? Those are my two main questions, you know, when you're talking about makeup. I don't really care if he goes to church. I don't care if he, if he has a charitable case. I just, is he going to fit in the clubhouse and not be a problem? Is he going to work hard? That's really, you know, that's all I care about. And, and that's where, you know, having people make creating networks to help with those makeup digs, I, I think is super, super valuable. And, you know, Cody, you were a guy who always had a really great reputation for makeup, but you also played in a million AAA clubhouses. I, you know, when I worked in baseball, one of my jobs was to visit all of our minor league affiliates, go on the field, go watch how they operate, spend some time in the clubhouse, talk to all the coach about other players. And, and I'll be honest with you. Triple A clubhouses, and I, I'm sure you might agree with this, you might not. I'm kind of interested. One of the more miserable places you'll ever be because no one wants to be there. They all think it's they funny you say it. that. They uh, should my... all be somewhere else. And um, so, I mean, does that kind of experience kind of hurt makeup? And did you know you had a reputation as being a good makeup guy? And do you think that helped you play as long as you did? I'm not going to lie to you. I would second guess myself on what my makeup might have been seen as because you know there. I was always the guy who won. I I was always the guy that was always kind of a lot. I wouldn't say locker room leader. I think that's a really. I think that's giving myself way too much credit. I I definitely wanted locker rooms and clubhouses and guys to have fun and stay loose. And I took it. I it was always put on me, or I even sometimes would just take it upon myself to do that. Um, you know, I would I would put together if we had a bus trip for whatever reason. Uh, say I was playing in El Paso and we had to take a bus trip to Round Rock. Normally we'd fly, but we did a bus trip. I would put together like bus trivia for the guys and like do things that we could just have fun with. I, I used to do that all the time. Um, I, I, I just, uh, yeah, the makeup thing is an interesting thing. Like you said, I don't think anybody's politics or religious background or anything like that should ever come into play. If they're a good guy, they're a good guy. Do they mix with the guys and are they going to work hard? I think you hit the nail on the head. There aren't that many guys that are problems. There really aren't. For the most part, they're all very good people who are just there to work really hard. But what you mentioned about AAA, 100% right. My miserable first, places. My very first time in AAA was 2012 uh, in Tucson. I played for the Tucson Padres. No one would come to the games, and I remember I got moved up from AA. I was having a great season. I get to AAA, and I walked into a buzzsaw of a clubhouse. Everyone was miserable. Everybody's getting screwed, at least in their eyes. Mm -hmm. I'm stuck here. I'm better than the first baseman in the big leagues. How am I stuck here? Hey, I'm hitting sixth in the lineup. I'm getting screwed. Hey, I only got pulled. I got pulled after 80 pitches. I'm getting screwed. Everyone's getting screwed. It's the worst thing you'd ever see in your life. <laughs> After that first year, I just promised myself I will never play in a clubhouse like that again at this level. And I made sure the next year that our clubhouse was a blast in Tucson. And then we went to El Paso. That clubhouse was a blast. I, I went over to Reno. That clubhouse was a blast. I made sure of it. I was never going to allow that to happen again because, like you said, AAA does not lend itself to the most wonderful experiences. Nobody it's, wants to be there. I mean, I'll, I'll, this is the best uh, analogy I can give you. It's like an old, it's a very Dickensian type scene. Old London, uh, old London, Victorian era, and you are a child with fingerless gloves on Christmas Eve, claw clawing at a window of a family sitting next to the fireplace eating dinner. 
that's what AAA sometimes is. You're pressed up against the window, but you can't get inside and have the meal. <laughs> um, last email comes from Sean. He said, I have a question for you. While inside baseball, did you hear any different theories about changes they might make to the game that have not been implemented? I am decidedly not a fan of runners starting on second base in extra innings, though I do like limitations on pitch changes. Also, if you were able to make changes, would you? Uh, by and large, I like the game as it's been played, but I understand the desire to make the game more exciting to the casual viewer. Uh, Sean, I'm going to disagree with you. I actually like the runner on second base in extra innings. Um, for me, baseball is a stress game. I think the entertainment value comes from stress. And I think putting a guy on second base in the 10th inning to start creates an immediate stress moment, and that's what makes the game so great. I also think really long games can, can really hurt a team and create some some real physical risk for guys. That's where I get uncomfortable with it. You know, you can really end up putting relievers in in very dangerous situations when you get into those situ- those areas where you have back-to-back 14-inning games and you can, everyone's just shot the next game and you're depending on a starter. Maybe it's your fifth starter you're only going to get five out of anyway. And, but just bad things can happen. I'm perfectly fine with it. And I'm, I disagree with you again. I don't like the limitations on pitch changes. They were designed to shorten the games and the numbers showed they haven't shortened games at all. So why do them? If that was their purpose and they're not serving their purpose, let's get rid of them. Uh, as far as other changes, I think the only thing that comes to mind immediately is just the electronic strike zone, which I think you'll probably see, my guess would be in 23 or 24. Um, and then we'll stop talking about catcher's framing because we'll have an electronic strike zone. Um, the one thing you're going to see immediately this weekend probably is just, and I know it's going to happen. I've actually talked to some teams and I know this is happening. Um, first week of spring training games are going to be seven innings, some six, some five. They can do it and they're going to do it. They don't have enough players. They're not stretched out. Um and I think that's fine. But I, I mean, how did you feel about the the, the, the guy on second to start the 10th? Um, I agree with you completely. I was totally against it at first. But, it, you know, that rule came into play two years earlier over in AAA. Right, right. You um, saw it in person first. And I got to say, when I first when it first happened, like, this is stupid. I can't believe we're doing this. But you know what? No. It actually makes all the sense in the world. You notice baseball these days has gone very much to the power game, away from small ball. Of course. You know, when you have a runner on second base and nobody outs, that immediately lends small ball back to the game. You have to decide on how you want to do it. It's it's a lot like a football extra point. Can you play the safe game and get the runner in and manufacture that run? Or are you going to go for the more extra points by trying to go for more? Try and knock him in and hit a double type thing. So it's I, I found it, like you said, immediate stress. Uh, immediately puts that pitcher in a tough spot. It puts that defense in a tough spot, and it puts the offense in a tough spot. Uh, I really, really like it. I didn't think I would, but it really, and it did speed up the game a little bit. You know, when you're going extra innings and you're seeing guys go three up, three down, you're just like, oh, God, we're going to be here forever. Um, so I, I loved having that runner in scoring position. Um, automated strike zones, I am uh, on the fence about it. Uh, and here's why I'm on the fence about automated strike zones. I think this is going to benefit pitchers so much more than hitters. The top of the strike zone, high strikes are going to become the biggest thing in baseball the moment the automated strike zone comes in. And the corners are going to get bigger too. Yeah, it's going to be something else. I think we're. I think it's going to be some real interesting things when that happens. And last but not least, I, I am 100% on board with the universal DH. Not because I think it's a better baseball game. I do, but that's not my point. The real reason why I want the universal DH to be in there is because I want this useless debate to stop it's going <laughs> to happen just let it go are you let sure it's it not go. because you're just you're just looking for an opportunity for a for a 511 right right dh 
hey man, not there weren't very many of us, and I really, 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 really wish that I was either ten years older or younger. Um, I, 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 my biggest thing is like with all these changes, and most of them are designed to make the game quicker. I, I do think, and I, this the, the Universal Strike Zone you talked about, I think it's going to change. I think everything baseball does. The law of unintended consequences rears its ugly head every damn time. And so all of a sudden, you end up with all these things that you don't want to have happen. And I, I think, and I don't think baseball is capable of doing this, but they should be capable of it. It's just letting the game change organically and naturally. It happens. It does it, does it on its own. And I think being patient and letting that happen would be their best bet, but I just don't think that's going to happen. And I've also seen very little proof that any of these adjustments have actually shortened games. No, uh, it's, 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 by, it's by seconds. It doesn't matter. Yeah, so I, I, I don't – I really dislike the uh, new pitching change rule. I really dislike it. I think what you've done – It doesn't make el- games shorter. It doesn't, it doesn't make the game shorter. And yeah. what you did was you eliminated, f- like, three jobs. Yeah. Left on left specialist no longer exists. That's unfortunate. Like, I, I played with a lot of guys who spent a lot of time in the big leagues who would never get another chance to play in the big leagues because of this. Right, um, and, play, and, and, play, and some guys who lasted into their late 30s, early 40s just because they had, they could get lefties out. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like you're taking... I mean, I don't like anything that removes more strategy out of the manager's hands. I feel like so much has been taken out of a manager's hands in these last 10 years right. that that's now just an extra thing to be taken out. Um. I, those are all the email. I do want to talk to you about one other thing, Cody, because in my mind, the most fascinating part of your lengthy baseball reference page are the pitching statistics. I was awesome. I was I was the best pitcher in the PCL like three years running. So you pitched in nine minor league games. You threw eight and a third. Yep. Innings. A, were you just a super annoying dude always saying, let me take the mound, let me take the mound? And B... How hard did you throw? It's important to know. I mean, let's 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 talk about the numbers. You faced thirty-seven batters in your career, and you struck out zero. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the arsenal like? The arsenal. I'm going to get to that second first. <laughs> I'm going to go with the first part of the question. Uh, was I the annoying one that always asked to pitch? No, no, I was not. Uh, I never wanted to pitch. Uh, then I remember the first time I did pitch. Uh, it did not go well. I was just throwing. You know, I was just throwing strikes. I could throw you had a scoreless DP. outing your first outing. Did I? I? I remember my first outing being in Reno as a member of the El Paso Chihuahuas the last game of the season. I pitched. I was supposed to get the last out of the inning, and I think I gave up like three runs. No, that was number two. You pitched a scoreless inning, giving up just one hit in 2014. Oh, I do remember that. I do remember that. <laughs> Jeff Francoeur was in center field, and he purposely let a ball drop for a double. I was furious with him because he wanted to get me back for convincing him. He, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I take that back. That was my first outing. Okay, okay, let's go back. So <laughs> I played a game. It was a day game. It was one of those kids games, like 11 a.m., and oh, we were losing great. by like 13 runs, and Jeff Francoeur went in to pitch an inning. And now Jeff would go on the mound and throw 93. I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to go on the mound and throw 63. And I remember I got the first two outs on like two pitches, and my third guy hits a pop-up to center. And I remember Frenchie's playing center field and runs to it and just stops and lets it drop. And the guy gets on second base, and I look at Frenchie, and I get, and I luckily get him up a ground ball for the third out of the inning. I get him like Frenchie, what what's going on? He's like, that's for telling me that Jorge was deaf for a month. I'm like, well, that was more on you than me. 
So I said, okay, they, that's fair. Why, why, that's did fair. They, why did they use you so much? You, you pitched in four games in 2018. Why were you the guy? Were you, were you just like, hey, if we need an extra arm? The, the, when the, we, yeah, when I, was, when, when, I, when I was playing for the Diamondbacks, uh, we had a taxi squad that was very, very, very specific to the point where we had three guys. We, we never had a full bullpen. We always gotcha. had two guys available to us at all times. Right. So if the game was out of hand, I was throwing at least an inning. And my goal when I pitched was, and because I could do this, because you know, playing in the minor leagues, you don't make a lot of money. In the offseason, you got to give lessons to a lot of kids. And in Santa Monica, I was giving lessons six hours a day, seven days a week, uh, all throughout Los Angeles. And I remember I got really good at just throwing the ball at four-year-olds' bats. I got really good at it. So to the point where I can throw any speed and pinpoint it. So I, my goal was to throw a pitch that was so slow that it would not register on the gun. What that means is I have to throw the ball slower than 52 miles per hour. I was going to ask was, you what that number is, yeah. So I was throwing pitches for strikes in the 40s, and I was driving hitters insane. They hated me. I would go up there and just lob it, and I would cross the zone in the perfect spot, and I would just lead the league in ground outs, baby. And I remember every time I get off the mound after going one, two, three, we're down by like 10 that day for whatever reason, and I just get in the dugout, I look at our pitches, I'm like, that's it? Shit's easy. Why are you throwing 95? I just got them all out of 45. Figure it out. Oh, so uh, done with the baseball for a little bit. Let's talk about, we always have our moment of culture. Talk about a book, TV, music, movie, something you've ingested that you recommend. What you got, Cody? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big, uh, I'm a bi- I went to film school. I, I, I grew up making films. I'm a big film geek. Um, but obviously, we're in the age of television streaming. Yes. And there is a show that I was very hesitant in watching because it was a part of a, it was initially a part of a comedy bit that I didn't think was all that funny. And finally, I tweeted out because I was kind of out of shows to watch. I was thinking about going back and watching some old shows. In fact, right now, I'm re binging all of the episodes of The Grand Tour because I'm a huge fan of Top Gear and The Grand Tour. Okay. Uh, but, uh, I put out, hey, what can I watch? I want to watch something new. And I remember one of my favorite bands is a band called The Head and the Heart. And they responded to me um, saying, watch Ted Lasso. I've heard good things. I don't know. I, it, I'm not a football guy and I don't know if I want to see this. I'm telling you. I want to see this. you got to watch Ted Lasso. I will I, it's, it. it's a truly wonderful show. It is a show, especially if you're around athletics, it's an inspiring show. It's and the, the, the 10 show. second thing is, this is a, a, a football coach who ends up going to England to coach a soccer team, right? Yes. He okay. gets hired to go coach a soccer team. And they, they very much take some things from major league. They take some things from, you know, he's this overly optimistic coach that would drive you insane until he just slowly gets everybody on board to the point where you're just even buying in as a viewer. And it, you want a show that just makes you feel like a million bucks. Mm-hmm. You walk away feeling inspired. That's why I love this show. Because I walked away from this television show feeling legitimately inspired. And I don't feel, I feel like we're in an age, especially when it comes to art and television and movies, we're in a big time age of cynicism, especially this last, last year and a half. It's yeah, with good reason. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of reason to be cynics. But I found it so refreshing to see something that was just joyful. And that's what I found Ted Lasso to be. I cannot recommend it enough. I think it's the best show I've watched in the past two years. I'll, I'll add it to my list. Um, we uh, 
watch all sorts of TV and movies as well. And then, I don't know how this happened, but at some point we got to the point where like we watch the shows we're watching and, and maybe watch a movie. And then as it gets close to bedtime, we, we transition to YouTube and we start watching some like YouTube subscriptions that we have. And um, I like this stuff. I was a big fan of this stuff, kind of real life murder and mayhem stuff. And there's a, a guy on YouTube. I don't know his name, but he's Irish. But the, the, the YouTube channel is called That Chapter. And twice a week, he simply tells the story of, a, of something horrible in our world. I got some sort of murder and mayhem story. And it's fascinating. And I just, I respect how well he does it in the terms of you get every detail. He knows the whole story inside and out. And, and you know, if that kind of dark stuff is fascinating to you, I think this is way better than the kind of stuff you find on, you know, A&E or the Discovery Channel like that. It, it, it's very in-depth that you get like the entire story and how this happened and he investigates the whole thing and it's, it's fascinating stuff and we, we tend to look forward to our twice a week oh there's a new that chapter and so i know he's super popular i think he's like a million subscribers at this point and it's just this irish dude talking about bizarre cases hmm. i gotta check it out I, That's I definitely my thing. I, i'm a huge true crime fan trust me yeah if, if, you I, like if true crime, I'm watching... i think you'll dig this dude yeah, if I'm not watching Top Gear or something, I'm probably sitting down watching, you know, some documentary about some horrific murder that right. happened in the 1930s. I, yeah, I think you'd dig this, dude. I think he's very good at what he does. Uh, Cody, you, you're joining us from, from lovely El Paso. Um, you know, you talked about what you're doing post-career. Can you talk about uh, the Academy and what you're doing there? Yeah, so I'm I'm uh, the Associate Executive Director of a baseball and softball nonprofit called the El Paso Border Youth Athletic Association. The mission and goal is to get as many kids into college, especially lower income family, lower income fa kids who didn't really get a lot of opportunities uh, in baseball to give them higher end training, um, give them classroom sessions, SAT uh, counseling, uh, tutoring, and uh, putting them through everything they need to know what it takes to actually get into college, like going through NCAA Clearinghouse. And we give them a lot of uh, instruction. Uh, uh, some of our partners that have joined up with us uh, in helping us train guys is uh, a program called Bimo Elite Athletics out of Los Angeles. They've expanded to El Paso. They came and joined me as part of this uh, program. But the whole goal is to kind of, I want my, my, my ultimate dream in this is to turn El Paso into a baseball haven. Uh, we're in the midst of trying to, raising money to build a spring training complex out here basically um, for us to use, operate, run tournaments. Um, and uh, bring more ball players here rather than ball players leaving here. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we came here, the training here was very much in the dark ages. When I say dark ages, I mean it's just old-fashioned. Hey, let's go do a pitching lesson and throw long toss. And the, no data, no information. Uh, everyone, every baseball player here, clearly had never lifted a weight in their lives. So we come with a much higher end strength and conditioning program, a much higher end. Um, uh, throwing programs, recovery programs, everything you could ever want under the sun. And it's uh, it's very detailed, and I'm really proud of the work a lot of these guys have done. I mean, we have a lot of kids that are, I mean, uh, from El Paso Community College who were throwing 78, and now they're throwing 90. And uh, guys right. have put on 20 pounds of muscle. And we have high school kids. We have one high school kid who was a senior, is a senior right now. Uh, last summer, he was throwing 62 miles per hour on the mound. He started the program, started working out. Uh, we started monitoring his diet, changed the way he trains and running his program. He's 
just hit 80 miles per hour last week, and now we're at the point where we might be able to find a place for him to go play college, maybe an NAIA or maybe a junior college. Right, right. Somewhere, like, he can continue his baseball journey. And I've always told people this. It doesn't matter where you play. If you play after the age of 18, that is an accomplishment. No doubt. full-on accomplishment. You have no idea how hard that is to do. And if you got a chance to do that, you've accomplished something that very few in the world have ever gotten a chance to do. And, um, you know, and if you can get an education out of the process, absolutely. I, I, you know, baseball ends for all of us. It ended for me. It ends for every single player. But that education continues to go on. And if, you know, I feel like it's a perfect marriage between the two. I, I, my favorite phrase that the NCAA ever came up with was student athlete. And the first word in that is student. And if people want to learn more about this organization, what do they do? Please check us out at uh, borderyouth.org. That's borderyouth.org. Uh, any any way you guys could, anyone that could help us in any way, if, uh, either donation or scholarshiping a play or, or, you know what, even if something as simple as just sharing the link or sharing a tweet or sharing an Instagram post, that you have no idea what that means to a lot of these kids. Um, players that have never been scouted, never had a chance to play in front of anybody. Um, you know, it's it's a challenge, but it's... It, it really is worthwhile, especially when you see a guy who's never, who's just been, you know, I, I guess it's part of how I came through baseball. I was always kind of doubted. I was always kind of, yeah, yeah, but you're a right on, right, right in 5'11, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm 225 and a pretty muscular guy and I can hit a ball 600 feet. So, like, I'm all right. These kids just don't have, never had the opportunity to play in front of people or have higher end. Uh, instruction and you know it's been a year now and it's been wonderful and we have gotten some guys to the next level we just got another kid who uh is finally breaking 90 he just committed to a new junior college but i don't even think he's gonna go because i think we have a chance to find this kid a d1 program nice a year ago this was never gonna happen for him right i'm just i'm really it's it's incredibly incredibly rewarding to see young young men reach their goals that they didn't know was even possible that's fantastic. Well, I, let's end on on that positive note, Cody. I can't thank you enough. Well, I you know we'll have you on again for for Cody Decker Story Hour at some point. <laughs> uh, if, you, if people want to follow you on Twitter, they go to at Decker Six and on Instagram, Anti Hero Baseball. You can check out all the things I'm doing. I'm currently uh, between jobs, but that's not going to last too much longer. I'll have some news soon, hopefully. And uh, please check out. Uh, Please check out everything we're doing with the El Paso Border Youth Athletic Association. I it means the world to me, and uh, I, I really think everybody would be really impressed with uh, the amount of the amount of work these young men have done. That's great stuff. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any questions, send us an email. Shinmusic at Fangraphs.com. Thank you, Cody. And